Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, everybody, and welcome to episode 99 of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast, where we answer the question, which one is Peter, which one is John, and do I really need to know? Uh, I'm your host, Chris, and I run a little website called the thejalloscore.com. I had to think about that for a second. And uh, with me today is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Al. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you? I am fair to Midland, as my mother used to say. I think that's an Irish term. Ever hear that? I have heard that, and I can't remember where, but I don't know if it was Irish related. Maybe (laughs) it's uh, been assimilated into the general culture. It could be. And I think fair to Midland means... Not terrible, but not fantastic. I don't know. Like even keel. Maybe that's what it means. Yeah. I wonder what the difference between fair and Midland is because they both sound kind of average in the middle, lukewarm, you know? Right. So anyway, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in case you were wondering, um, We decided at the end of podcast episode 98 that we were going to be covering a film today called Death Knocks Twice. And after my third attempt at trying to watch this horrible piece of garbage, I sent an email to my good buddy Al and said, can we change the movie to something else? Because I hate this movie so much and I don't want to talk about it. And Al, I don't know if you watched enough to agree with me or if you just said, okay, whatever Chris wants to do is fine. I had not started it yet, but I was just on the verge of watching it when you put the brakes on it. So have you have you gone back to it since? No, because I had to go through this (laughs) one like four times to figure out what the (laughs) hell was going on. And uh, it, it put me in a state of pathological inertia. And I could have become very dangerous, but I think I figured it out. Well, I really have to apologize because the movie that I picked to to, to replace Death Knocks twice, the 1969 film called 
Shadow of Death, also known as Macabre, is just as bad. The only difference is the quality of the picture is better. Yes. And uh, that's about it. I think they're both in English, if I remember correctly. Uh, So, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Shadows of Death is the movie we're going to be covering today. And I have a lot to say about it. Um, None of it is good. Oh, we'll get to that later. Uh, (laughs) But before we do that, um, I wanted to update everyone on the progress we have made on show number 100, which is coming up next. Mm -hmm. Um, So as it stands now and anything can change because that's the way life goes, uh, Matt, a.k.a. Creep Creeperson and Eric, a.k.a. The Phantom Eric, have both agreed to be on the show for the 100th episode where we will be revisiting the bird with the crystal plumage and who the hell knows what else we'll be doing. Um, I, I kind of think that we could do the show like we do all the other ones where we, you know, have a bunch of non prior, you know, topics that weren't discussed prior to that we improv on and vamp on for a bit. And then, scene by scene the the movie or it could go a completely different way so but i'm excited and um i've been in touch with matt a few more times i finally figured out that text messaging matt directly is the best way to get in touch with him because he responds so um so i'm looking forward to that and uh what do you think alan do you think it's uh it's gonna be all we've we've hyped it up to be yeah i'm kind of looking forward to it myself uh I have recorded a few episodes with Matt since I started, but I haven't uh, had a conversation with Eric, and I haven't heard the two of them together in 49-plus episodes. Yeah. So that would be good, and uh, it'd be kind of like an all Jalo, all, no, a Chow Chow All-Stars type thing. I yeah, guess. yeah. I mean, you know, for those of you who are new to the show, um, back in 2013, Matt and Eric started the podcast as Jalo Chow Chow. Their first episode was a deep dive on the bird with the crystal plumage. And by episode, I want to say four or five, they had invited me to talk about my website. And then I just kind of hung around because I had nothing, <laughs> I had nobody, I had nobody else to talk to about these movies besides those two guys. And they seemed to be okay with me hanging around. So. Um, I've been on the podcast ever since. And of course, Al was our Italian correspondent who was sending us information about the films we were covering and requesting things and then eventually became part of the show as well. And Mm -hmm. here we are um, 10 years later. So um, I'm excited. I think it'll be I'm excited because I don't know what will happen. I think that's what it is. It's the the amount of unpredictability uh, for this 100th episode makes me very excited. So stay tuned for that, everybody. And uh, I think we're going to be recording that about a month from now. So the first Saturday in December, which means I should be able to get it out and distribute it out to everybody before the end of the year. And if that happens, I will probably take a step back and pat myself on the back for accomplishing a goal that I set in <laughs> January of 2023, not only of getting those two guys on the show, but also doing 10 episodes in the year, one per month 
and finishing up with episode 100 before the end of the year. Um, this is what success feels like, I guess, right? I mean, yeah, I've never noticed it before, but. You get that episode out while it's still technically the 10-year anniversary of mm-hmm. the podcast. Because when that calendar changes, then it becomes the 11-year anniversary. Well, and, you know, I thank you for that unintended segue. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, um, and now is a better time as, as, as any, to talk about um, episode 101 and where we go from here. And I have a couple of ideas. Okay. And the first one is, you know, obviously we've spent a lot of time with Proto Jolly, and quite honestly, I am tired of it. I am ready to jump ahead and start watching films that, you know, nothing against the proto-Jalo films that we've covered. There are a lot of good ones. There are some bad ones. But they all kind of have that same, um, you know, that that there, that thing that's that I just feel like uh, I'm missing something when I watch these. It's like, um there's there's something I'm not reaching where I need to reach. It's as like I don't want to put a sexual uh metaphor here, but it's like uh not getting to the climax. It's all you know what is well, it I, what was the there there was a an expression that I heard um a philosopher say it's all it's all wretch and no vomit or something like that. A philosopher that said it. that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, it was, uh, yeah. I I, we, I understand what you mean. It feels like it's so close, yet not quite there. But I think some of that is built into the fact that we're calling them proto-Jolly. Because right. uh, we're expecting more Jolly elements or score points. You know, things that you, you, your whole website is based on. Right. I w- wonder if we had watched these as they were being released in the 60s, we probably would have appreciated them more because we wouldn't have been looking at them through the lens of the jolly that we appreciate from the 70s a little bit more. Right. Uh, I don't think we've done one yet that I did not like. Well, okay, maybe one or two. (laughs) Well, one's... Okay, anyway. Um... I think they all have something to offer. They all have places where they kind of missed the mark or could have done things a little bit better, but I have enjoyed almost all of them, including right. this one. But uh, yeah, they're not, they're not quite jolly. And I think just the term proto jolly kind of colors it a little bit. Yes. And you know, I don't, I don't mean to say that I expected more, from these than um, than I got because I kind of you know I assumed that before the formula really took hold in the 1970s, it was a lot of kind of experimentation with various kind of subgenres and um, different kinds of plot tactics. 
But, you know, if you look back, one of the ones that we did a while ago called Deadly Inheritance mm-hmm. was probably the closest because it was a killer who hadn't been identified and continues to kill and eventually gets unmasked at the end and we find out what the motive is. And that's kind of the prototype that we expect from the later, you know, from the classic um, Jalo period. Whereas a lot of the proto stuff is more like building on the lay the oblique idea of trying to make somebody go crazy or trying to fool somebody into thinking one thing or another thing like this film, the film we're going to cover is kind of the opposite of lay the oblique where, you know, these two people get together and they decide to plot to get the third person to go crazy by keeping him awake Mm -hmm. and making him, you know, get to a point of delirium through exhaustion or something. Uh, anyway, we'll get into it. I mean, the, the pseudoscience in, in this movie is <laughs> is o- is over the top. Off and I the wish charts. I had taken. Yeah, it's off the charts. I wish I had taken the time to run the Jalo score for Shadow of Death because it really does click a lot of buttons or check a lot of uh, check a lot of boxes. And I don't really know what the score might be. But um, anyway, the point is. That, um, you know, I, I really, a couple of years ago, I said, I really want to understand and pay attention to or spend some time with these films that occurred before 1970, just to kind of round out my education and, and my, my understanding of what we were, what we had jumped into back when we started watching these films from 1970. Well, I think we did 18 Proto Jolly, and then thrown in the middle of that was an episode for Dark Glasses. Which, right. Yep. And that kind of threw me off, because as I was putting my list together, I'm thinking, okay, my first episode was 81, and now we're at 99, so there should be 19 episodes, but I had... I guess I just kind of skipped over the Dark Glasses episode, assuming maybe it was like a point five in the numbering or something. Yeah, so I thought I thought that too. I yep. was looking all over. Where's this extra episode I'm missing? And yeah, duh. Okay, we didn't have it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and Lady Abelique technically isn't a proto jolly. It it comes before the the classic period of Jalo films. Um, yeah. It's, but before, it's from, it's from the 50 something, right? Or yeah, it is. It yeah. It's from the fifties and it's before uh, the girl who knew too much or even blood. Well, especially blood and black lace. Right. And right. along that point, you know, I was just talking about how if we call these proto Jolly, they feel a little disappointing. I wonder what the people at the time called them besides just like thrillers or mysteries or something. Maybe if we looked at it as not proto jolly, but post Hitchcock, which okay would be equally, uh, yeah, I think that's fitting. a valid way to describe them. Sure, maybe we would appreciate them a little more because we wouldn't be comparing them to Argento and Fulci and Martino and stuff like that. Well, you know, it's hard to do a comparison. If you're using the basis of the comparison 
being films that came after the things you're comparing them to. That right. kind of makes it that makes it tough. Um, if you compare, you know, the films from the, the Jalo films from 1970 and 71 to the Jalo films from the 80s, you can say, you know, I, you know, there's a direct way to compare, like, you know, look how things have evolved. But right. Um, because those filmmakers knew about those earlier films, but the ones like, you know, the sweet body of Deborah and naked, you die and hyena in a safe, like, you know, none of those films were made with the knowledge of what Argento was going to do, you know, four or five years later. So, um, you know, they were all kind of taking a stab at, um, trying to find some sort of thriller type film that was going to catch on and be really popular. And, you know, you did have something like blood and black lace, which, I mean, I don't really know a lot of film history and, you know, I don't know the details of when blood and black lace came out. It, it sounds to me like it wasn't super duper successful and how much of an influence over the films that came after it did it have? Because that film is absolutely a classic Jalo prototype kind of film. It's a black glove killer. It's a bunch of models. It's a whodunit. It's a, you know, like if it, it really, um, it really falls into the right formula or the formula that we expect that comes you know, six years later. But if you look at the films in between Blood and Black Lace and Bird with Crystal Plumage, there aren't that many that follow the same formula that that Bava did back in 64. So I've wondered a few times, why was it or why wasn't Blood and Black Lace like Bird with the Crystal Plumage as far as influence? Um, Right. Because, or the flip side of that is, what was it about the bird with the crystal plumage that lit the fuse? Yeah. Um, Because every time I watch Blood and Black Lace, I'm thinking this should have been the one that immediately spawned a bunch of imitators, which you could arguably say is exactly what happened after uh, plumage. Right. But it didn't. And not only that but it took 6 years before something that i would i think it'd be fair to say that argento was definitely super aware of blood and black lace when he made bird even though the plots aren't exactly the same but there's a lot of shared hallmarks but it took 6 years before somebody kind of got the fuse lit that immediately exploded into the 70s jalo movement which you know we all appreciate but right i i don't get why that didn't happen after blood and black lace came out so maybe it just wasn't distributed widely enough Uh, maybe there were other films that came out that year that kind of overshadowed it at the box office or right i mean it's probably a combination of factors you know if you and again, I don't <clears throat> I don't know this for a fact, but if Blood and Black Lace wasn't popular enough to make a huge impact, um, that's one of the reasons. But the other reason 
is that, you know, from, from the time that that came out until the time that bird came out, you had six years worth of films coming out and the culture absolutely changing because it was the late sixties and all of the stuff that we've been looking at for the past two years, as far as the films, they all kind of have a little bit of influence Mm -hmm. and maybe not directly, but just maybe they have an indirect influence on the energy that was, that was going on at that time period. And, you know, you also have to kind of look at what else was really popular or semi-popular right in and around the time that um, that bird with the crystal plumage came out. So like um, the Lindsay films and um, Bava's uh, five doll for five dolls for an August moon was in that in and around that time. And uh, the weekend murders, I think were in and around that time. So Mm -hmm. not to say that Argento, kick-started the genre by himself. I, I mean, you know, it, I'm sure there were other things that led up to this perfect storm, whereas with Blood and Black Lace, maybe this the timing wasn't right. And, you know, you could say that Bava was ahead of his time because most people usually do say yeah. that. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it's like Argento got, did he get lucky? It's partly luck. It was partly the influence that he had over the the film industry because he had family members that were up high in the ranks. Um, <clears throat> and he also had um, really good uh, credits that were, you know, th- that were part of Bird with the Crystal Plumage, like the cinematographer and Ennio Morcone and uh, right. the script writers and... You know, he had a kind of an all-star team making this this movie. So, yeah. Um, but it's been it's been fun to go through these films, and I think that you know there are a few that I've kind of put a star next to that I'll that I'll return to one day, and um, there are some that I probably won't ever watch again, and there are a few that I skipped over that I may, for the sake of being a completist, may go back to one day. But um, I think we did a pretty decent job of going through them all. Besides the idea of what films are we going to cover, I want to talk about, and this this is an absolute brainstorming session. I'm not married to any of the ideas that I throw out here, um, and you're welcome to object to them. Al and you, y'all listeners at you know at home, uh, are welcome to object to any of these. I think that um, I would like to try changing it up so that we spend a little less, put a little less emphasis on the scene by scene and see how it goes. Um, But in order to do that properly, I think that a format, some sort of a structure needs to be put in place. Like if you're like, it's very easy to structure the podcast when you say, okay, we're going to start at 
the opening scene of the film and go all the way through to the end. You've got your structure. Um, if you're not going to do that, then how do you structure the podcast? So it's like maybe um, we start out by saying, okay, here's all the production credits like we always do. Here's a not brief synopsis, but not overly lengthy synopsis of the plot. And then let's have a discussion about what were the things that we found really uh, exciting or important to talk about, you know, timestamps or, you know, you can say, okay, you know, look, I really like this. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about what happened in the fifth, you know, the fourth scene here or the scene after the second murder, blah, 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 blah. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, we could move on to aspects of the cinematography or move on to aspects of the soundtrack or aspects of the plot. Um, And it's not because everyone is complaining about the scene by scene. The only, the the person who's complaining the most about the scene by scene is me. I'm complaining (laughs) about it Um, because, you know, the last episode that we did for date for a murder, it required me to watch the film three times. The third time I took scene by scene notes. Then it required me to go through scene by scene while we had the discussion. Then it required me to edit the podcast. Okay. So let's just pretend we live in a universe where we don't do scene by scene. And instead we just kind of, we, we, we come to the podcast with our own notes about things we want to talk about. And that sounds like, you know, a, 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 an idea that has some merit. But on the other hand, I would think that half of the insightful tangents that we went, have gone down over the past two years with these episodes, we may not have gone down if we weren't doing scene by scene because it was like something occurred to us because some stupid thing happened on, you know, on the, on whatever scene that we're talking about instead of, you know, if we're, if we're bringing our ideas of the, of the film to the, to the podcast, maybe that particular scene that we went on a tangent for, um, neither of us talked about. And so we just ignored it completely, but you know, like it's, it's more of a spontaneous, the tangents are, are, they, they kind of uh, are, they develop out of the fact that we're going meticulously through the film one scene at a time, you know? Yeah. I'm always, I'm always struck by the kind of spontaneous fun that we have as we're talking about something, because as I'm writing my notes, uh, not as detailed as to do the scene by scene as much as to react or comment on the scene by scene. I I'll think up something that I think is really clever or something that's kind of funny. And I'll write my stupid little jokes down. And half the times I don't even get around to saying them because I'm just immersed in the actual conversation. Right. But when I listen to the full official release of the podcast, most of the times that I bust out laughing in, you know, in real life, not just on the podcast is when we just hit on some funny bone about something that we didn't really plan or foresee us talking about. Just right. you'll one of us will make a little comment and somebody else will pick it up and take it a little further and then it snowballs <laughs> into this 
you know, um, like two minute tangent where we just go way <laughs> off. Right. And to me, that's kind of the, you know, one of my favorite parts of uh, listening to yeah. the, the show. <clears throat> if, I agree. But I think that maybe, you know, if those, op- if, it, you know, those opportunities will still present themselves, even if we're not going scene by scene through the film. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's worth a try just to, to see a, if it takes me a little less time to do the post-production and B, if we end up with a, uh, a podcast episode, that's, you know, um, significantly shorter. Yeah. And <clears throat> again, I don't know if a shorter podcast is something that we desire to, to put out or not. Like sometimes I just feel like, you know, making people, you know, not making people, but expecting people to listen to three or four hours of us talking may be a lot to handle. And some of, some of the people that listen to us, they like it. You know, the yeah. one guy on the Facebook page recently mm-hmm. commented, yeah, I like the scene by scene. I watched the film and then I listen to you guys like right after I watch it and, um, but I don't know. I, you know, if I, I think the, the reason why I brought this up is because a, we have an opportunity for a fresh start. It's going to be 2024. It's going to be episode one Oh one. And we're done talking about proto jolly. So there's a real definitive line being drawn in the sand here for making some changes. And, um, maybe it'll make my life easier with the editing. Maybe it'll attract more listeners if they see that, the podcast is a little bit more, you know, digestible because it's only an hour and 20 and not three. Um, so wow. I think it's worth a shot. Um, I think it's important too that, you know, we delineate when we do these films um, between the person listening who may not have seen the film and the person listening who has. And it's kind of like, okay, I really want to identify that starting now, we're going to be talking about the film and spoiling it. So, but um, for the people who haven't seen the film, I would like to be able to provide a decent amount of content so that if you haven't seen the film and, you know, there's, there's three different types of people who listen to us. There's the people who have seen the film who don't care if you spoil it because they've already seen it. And then you have the people who haven't seen the film and don't care if you spoil it anyway because they, you know, they just want to listen to the podcast. But I'm assuming that there's some people who, you know, um, may see that, hey, we're covering this particular film. Hey, I haven't seen that yet. I want to hear what Al and Chris have to have to say about it, whether they recommend it or not. Should I invest my precious time in watching this? And I don't want to know the ending. I don't want to know the spoilers, but I do want to know whether or not you guys like it enough to tell me to watch it or look for it or try to find it because some of these are obscure. So um, I think if we were to have some sort of a, a delineation in the format of the podcast saying, okay, here's the you know, here's the information about the film and here's some synopsis and here's what we think about it. Um, and now we're going to get into the details and the spoilers are coming. So t- 
turn this off if you haven't watched it yet or something like that. And again, I'm bringing this up not because I've gotten any feedback that supports this question. I'm just bringing it up because I'm wondering if people aren't listening to us simply because they know that, you know, they they have to watch the film first. And if it's a film that they don't have any desire to watch or if they can't access it for some reason, then they just skip over the episode. So I don't know. Well, I don't, I wonder how many people listen to film podcasts the way I do, because I think I've said on one of our episodes before, if there's a podcast about a film that I'm interested in, but I haven't really gone out of my way to find it. And I don't really know if I'm going to have time to watch it anytime soon. And if they do something like us, I mean, I don't listen to any four hour podcast besides our own. So they don't do it as much as we do, but they'll do like a rough scene by scene where they spoil everything. Right. They're telling the story of the film and I'll listen to that and I'll appreciate it as a story. Um, When I was a kid, one of my best friends had an older sister who was uh, a teenager and we were like in elementary school and she would go to watch Halloween, which of course eight and nine-year-olds could not go see, right? She would go with her friends, and she would come home, and we would sit on his front porch, and she would talk us through the movie, telling us basically scene by scene. And I would have nightmares off of that. Off the story, right. Yeah, just her telling us the story of Halloween and then Friday the 13th. And um, I think she told us Dress to Kill, too, because that came in around the same time. Hmm. And... I don't, maybe that's why I don't mind hearing somebody tell me the story of a film, even if I don't plan on watching it. And a lot of times, if it sounds interesting enough, I will go out and track down the film and watch right. it. And I still enjoy it. It's, yeah, I know basically what, what the ending is going to be or who survives or who doesn't. But it's uh, it's adding an extra layer to the story that I've already heard. You know, it's adding the visual layer and there might be some things that they didn't mention when they were telling me the story or, you know, on the podcast talking about the film that I noticed myself when I see the film. Um, So I'm I'm guessing enough people do that because I I don't know if uh, all the people that download our episodes have actually watched all these films. But it's not, and, like so, and some of them are hard to find too. So right, yeah, and uh, I know that might be worth looking into because I have noticed that some of the episodes I would have expected some more downloads, uh, they didn't get. So I wonder if it's uh, an availability problem with that. But yeah, it could be. Well, I mean, there is a, there is a distinction, and the distinction is. If you if you never saw the first Halloween film and you had somebody describe the film in detail, trying to go scene by scene, um, there isn't anything that you're going to you're you, you you're you're not going to be uh, let down when you see the film 
Right. Because a film like Halloween really doesn't have like a secret that's being, uh, you know, kept from the viewer until the very last few minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. But with Jolly, it's different. It's like, um, you know, not necessarily with the proto Jolly because, you know, th- those don't have this one. Like, I can't I can't come up with a, a one sentence uh, synopsis that spoils Shadow of Death. I mean, <laughs> it's just an interest. It, it's just it, the plot is is all over the place and there isn't like an aha moment, you know. Right. Uh, with that but um you know it depends on the film you're talking about but um yeah i guess that's the only distinction but it is funny that you bring that up because i i remember distinctly going to my grandmother's house when i was i don't know maybe 12 and i was starting to get into horror movies and my grandmother hated horror movies but my grandmother's sister loved them and we were sitting around the table one night after dinner and she was telling me about all the horror movies that she went to see and how great they were. And she was giving me like, she was telling me very specific things about this film and that film and this film and that film. And I'm listening, like I'm on the edge of my seat listening to all this stuff. And then she says, but then there was psycho. And I said, what do you mean? What, what what do you mean? And then there was Psycho. What does that mean? And she go, I can't I can't even tell you. She's like, forget about it. I can't. She you know, like <laughs> it was like all of the things that she told me up to that point, whether they were monster movies or Vincent Price movies or whatever they were, they were okay to tell tell me. You know, at mm-hmm. the dinner table as we were eating dessert or whatever. But once she thought about the idea that she gone to see Psycho, um. And just couldn't say a word about it. I don't know back then if I understood that she couldn't tell me anything about Psycho because there was a secret to the movie. Or if she couldn't tell me anything about Psycho because it was so um, over the top with being shocking for the time when it came out. You know, I, I really don't know the answer to that because I didn't ask her. But I just... I remember because you brought this up just a few seconds ago. I I do remember her telling me that Psycho, for her at least, was in a class of you know in its in its own class, like a, a head and shoulders above any of the other films that she went to see. It was like, and you know, I think most people agree who who lived through the 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 forties, fifties, and sixties probably would agree that that film kind of changed everything for most people. But um, that was really funny that, that I remember that, but uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to play around with this idea. You know, we've got another episode to do where we're going to basically go through bird with crystal plumage and then we'll take a little bit of a hiatus, you know, for a few weeks while I think about what I want to do. And Al, definitely, I want, I, I would be happy to have you contribute to those discussions and those ideas about, hey, let's have, um, let's do this or do that. And, you know, like, I think Matt and I, and back when it was Matt and, and me and um, Eric, we tried to have like segments on the mm-hmm. film, on the, uh, on the podcast that were like done every week. 
or maybe on a regular basis, maybe not every week, but um, that would be cool to to do that again. And like, and now it's time for our pick of the month or our comp, you know, our our composer of the month, you know, whatever. Yeah, something like that. But I, I the the bottom line is I, I'm excited because. Um, we've got like, like I said before, an opportunity to, to kind of get a fresh start with the podcast and there's plenty of films to still see for the first time. And there's plenty of films to go back to that I haven't seen in years that I've only seen once maybe cause you know, we watched it for episode, I don't know, 27 or something and I haven't seen it since. So that's. Um, that makes me excited yeah, that there's plenty of stuff to listen to. And, you know, you talked about this before and we, we had a discussion about it before. Like there are other people in the Jalo community on the various Facebook pages that, um, it might be fun to have on the show to have them talk about, you know, their perspective on Jalo and, mm-hmm. um, I only something was reminding me of that. Um, What did I get? Oh, I know what it was. So I think I may have posted this on the Facebook group, but Arrow, uh, the DVD and Blu-ray distributor had a sale on their media. And I don't know if it's still going on, but it was going on, I guess maybe for Halloween. I ended up getting a Blu-ray copy of, Bird with Crystal Plumage and a Blu-ray copy of The Fifth Chord, which is probably one of my favorite films because I just recently watched it again and it's definitely in my top five of all time. But um, I was noticing that... um, What's her name? The woman from the uh, Hypnotic Crescendos blog. I forget what her... uh, Rachel. Rachel Nesbitt, she, yeah, she has a, she has a commentary track, um, on one of the DVDs or Blu-rays that came out recently. And I think she has, um, she's been doing a lot of stuff. Now, I don't know if she's interested in coming on our stupid podcast, um, (laughs) because I think she's a little bit more professional and, and kind of, I don't want, you know, sophisticated, I don't know, you, you can use the word sophisticated when you're talking about Jalo films, but, you know, <laughs> um, I think she's like at a, a higher tier than us, but, you know, maybe. Um, well, she probably got paid to do those commentaries, so that's the she, definition yes. of professional. Right, she definitely did, and, you know, it, you know, would you, would you feel embarrassed to have Rachel on the show because she's, she knows her stuff and we're just two guys who say, oh, wow, look at that, you know, uh, uh, look at uh, what's her name's tits. They, they look great. You know, like that's not really commentary. It's just, you know. Well, I think it is. <laughs> but <laughs> it's just might... two like middle aged horn dogs uh, watching 70s movies, you know. Well, I can sweep it under the rug for an hour. Maybe. <laughs> so, uh why not? I don't know. I mean, there are people who have gone to film school and had to write a bunch of papers with, uh, you know, that highfalutin uh, cinema vocabulary to 
you know, and it's all just dressed up fancy ways of saying stuff that everybody talks about already anyway. Mm -hmm. And I've taken some of those classes and I've hung out with some of those students who are going to be the next Tarantino or the next Scorsese or whatever. And it would annoy me when they get that, um, I don't know, that kind of condescending tone or they just kind of use the, the kind of language about film that we've been reading in books and hearing the professor use. But I don't think they knew anything more than I did besides they had a bigger vocabulary to sound more educated about something. Um, right. Yes, that's true. I, I, I do think, though, that um, sometimes, I mean, if you go back and listen to um, every time I try to remember the name of the podcast that Rachel did with um, the the guy from Sweden, I can't remember what it was called. Um, um, fragments of fear. Yeah, there you go. Fragments of fear. So if you go back and listen to some of the fragments of fear episodes, um, every once in a while, when you have somebody that's that entrenched in speaking about cinema, you, I, I usually get something out of it. I usually get, you know, I, I usually notice things that I wouldn't have noticed before. Um, and now that, you know, I've been doing a podcast for the past 10 years about Jalo films, I definitely notice things about films than most regular people don't notice uh, because it's part of my job as a podcaster to bring this stuff out. But, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, I guess I don't know what I'm trying to say except for the fact that I was really impressed with the amount of knowledge that the two of them had in discussing these films, because it's kind of like, you know how Al, when you do, the production notes and you do the research, you get a lot of info, but it's kind of like you get that info for the first time because you do the research. And for most of the production notes or for most of the people involved in the film, this is the first time that you're doing research on them. But if you listen to some of the Fragments of Fear podcasts, you can tell that the two of them, they already know these people and they've already seen the seven or eight or nine or 10 films that this director did or, um, you know, that this actress was in. And maybe it's just the way that they come off and maybe they haven't seen all of these films and maybe they don't have any prior knowledge, but it sounds like they do and they sound confident in the fact that they are, you know, that they've been entrenched you know, I said the word entrenched twice now, but it sounds like <laughs> if I feel like they've been spending, you know, a, a, a good amount of what I would call professional time uh, doing this as opposed to it being a hobby, you know. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure what my point is. It's just that. Uh, well, what I was saying about people sounding professional slash educated, I was applying that to kind of film theory and filmmaking as an an art form not so much the world of Jalo and this director did this and that script screenwriter did that and i mean i i listen to podcasts where people do that 
the the ones with Sam Deegan and Cat Ellinger, and they both do commentaries, I think, on film releases. But they'll mention somebody, and then they, you know, they're obviously familiar with that person's work, and I've heard of their name for the very first time, like seven seconds earlier, you know? Right, right. Mm-hmm. But when they get into like the composition of shots and the editing styles and motifs and subtexts and all that kind of stuff. I'm there for that, but you know, it's, I think it's just a matter of how much time you've spent with that stuff. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, for, for music, I'm kind of like the opposite. I know people that can listen to a song and say, oh, it's interesting that he went to the diminished fourth in that measure instead of the the augmented seventh, you know, and all that theory stuff goes right over my head. But and there's I no augmented lo- seventh, but <laughs> because that would be the octave. No, no, yeah. no. That, right. Exactly. Either. Have, yeah. You know, you have the dominant or the major, or the minor. Good. I'm sorry. Right. OK. Well, see. <laughs> You're more professional than I am. (laughs) But I know a lot about the bands and musicians and, oh yeah, this guy played bass on this album and that album. Then he went and joined that other band and then they split off and started this and then he died of a drug overdose. And anyway, he covered this song and that song by these guys and then they opened for these guys on that tour in this year. And I know all that kind of stuff, but I couldn't tell you what key or, you know, even counting time signatures. You know, like, oh, um, Money by Pink Floyd is in 7-8. Uh, okay, I guess, if you say so, whatever. No, it is. You're right. You're right. Yeah, it's because I just heard somebody talking about it. It's not like I listen to it and I sit there and count it off in my head and say, oh, my God, that's 7-8. Well, no, you could do it. You, I'll, I'll show you right now. Boom, dum, da, dum, 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 da, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, okay. five, six. There you go. See, it's it's not as hard as you think. Okay. <laughs> I can count. I mean, I got that down pat. <laughs> you can count. Very good. good but I don't think like that. I'm not listening to music so I go one, two, three, four. Yeah, I anyway. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm okay. a dork that way. <laughs> like I well, like that the 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 new song by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard is in eleven and uh you know. Oh, that I like it even more because it's in eleven, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Al's well, quitting the podcast. He hates me. No, it's just I think people like that, like Nisbet and you know her uh, podcast partner that that know everything about everybody that they mention. Yeah. Okay. Great. That means you've been uh, interested in and looking into that stuff for a lot longer than I have. Right. You know, I mean, I kind of pat myself on the back when I see a movie title and I know that it's Mighty Obava just because I've, you know, either because I've seen it or I've looked at his IMDb page enough times and uh, doing the production notes for this. Uh, you know, I'm starting to recognize names of cinematographers and composers besides Nikolai and Morricone and, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Ortolani. 
And yeah, I, you have a, they you just have a, a lot point. more time doing it. Yes. And frankly, I only do it like once a month for one movie at a time. And there are just other things that I spend my free time paying attention. To, sure. You know? Well, and that's a really good point. Like anybody outside of our circle of Jalo people, like a regular normal person who doesn't know what a Jalo is, who just goes to the movies or whatever. If you told, if they, you know, if you told them, Hey, I've been doing a podcast about um, Italian murder mysteries from the 1970s for the last 10 years, they would say, well, you must be an expert. Um, <laughs> I mean, why, why wouldn't you be <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, it's a very specific type of movie from a very specific time period, from a very specific area of the world. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing a podcast about it for 10 years. I mean, you know, you could probably teach a college course with that, with those credentials, but I still don't feel like I'm in the same league as people who spend their professional lives you know, or dedicate their lives from a professional standpoint to film history and film criticism. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm underselling myself. Maybe I, I'm not giving myself enough credit, but you know, when it comes down to it, I, you know, I, I, I like the fact that, you know, I'm going to make a comment eventually that the two women that are in shadow of death are both attractive. And (laughs) then I'm going to talk about the fact that I looked up the woman who plays Denise and what she looks like now. And Oh my God, you don't want to look at what she looks like now. (laughs) And that's not really, that's not really academic. What I, you know, Dude, I was thinking the exact same thing for like the last week because I, <laughs> I, I Googled her too. And I was like, oh, okay, scroll, scroll. Oh, look at that. That's a nice dress. Like, oh. Scroll, scroll. Wait a minute. And it's like time-lapse photography. The, the, the lower down I scrolled, the, the more closer <laughs> to the current time we got. And I was just like, what the hell? Yeah. It's... Uh, okay. Well. You know, some people hit the wall faster than others. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, anyway, I don't know where we're going with this, but I think the I think the the the, the topic has been exhausted at this point. The idea here is that um, we're going to experiment with the format of the podcast moving forward after the next episode. So be cool. prepared for that, everybody who's listening. And if you like it, let us know. If you don't like it, let us know. Um it's probably a good time since we're about an hour in for me to drop some plugs, which is, Hey, get in touch with us using um, the Facebook thing that everybody does now. And unless you're under the age of 30 and um, you still want to be considered cool. It is the Facebook group called Jalo Chow Chow. It is a private group. Just ask for an invite and we will do that. And if you don't want to deal with Facebook, send an email to jalochowchow at gmail.com. Again, this is an opportunity for you, the dear viewer or listener, what have you, to um, 
let your voice be heard and let us know um, what films do you want us to cover? How do you want us to cover them? Do you like the scene by scene? Are you tired of scene by scene? Do you want to hear more about Proto Jolly? Do you want to hear more about Neo Jolly? Um, it's all, you know, the fact that we get, you know, triple digit listeners means that it's anybody's guess as to what's coming next. You know, we, we, we don't have a hundred thousand downloads per episode, so we're not tied to any sort of <laughs> specific way to do anything. Because we're getting to the end of the proto period, I think it would be fun to go through the 19 or so, 18 or so proto jolly that we covered over the past two years and come up with a top five. I originally thought, Al, that we would just do put all of them in order, but I think that's just that takes too long. I think yeah. a and I think a top three. Maybe better, but I think top five is when when I think about top five of anything, it's really hard. Like top five movies, top five albums, top five Jolly, top five Tarantino, top five. You know what I mean? Um, if you do top ten, it's much easier um, okay. because you can get the ones in there that you know are your favorites, and then you can pepper in a few that you know would have fallen off if you're only doing a top five. So I think top five makes it more serious and you kind of have to have some real come to Jesus moments with which films am I going to cut and which ones am I going to include? So um, with that being said, um, I also wanted to say when it comes to a top five of Proto Jolly, um, we're talking specifically about the films that we've covered since the beginning of 2022. So it doesn't include the girl who knew too much. It doesn't include um, blood and black lace. It doesn't include libido. It doesn't include the Lindsay films. Uh, Cause those were all, um, and it doesn't include, uh, cause one of my top five would absolutely be um, sweet body of Deborah. Um, but we didn't cover that one in the last couple of years either. So I'm limiting my top five list to just the films we covered over the past two years. Because again, I think if I had to do a top five of Proto Jolly, it would be Blood and Black Lace, um, Libido, uh, uh, Paranoia, or A Quiet Place to Kill. Um, and then on from there, probably. So with that okay. being said, I think maybe, Al, why don't you go first and give me your top five. And if you have some commentary to add, that would be great. Okay. I'm going to do this as a countdown. So I'm going to start with number five. All right. Yes. And work my way to number one. Um, looking at my list now, I realized that I had... Le Diabolique as number five. But you kind of just reminded me that that was kind of pre 
even uh, the first couple Bava films. Right. And when I think of Proto Jalo, I don't know, for some reason I, I'm thinking between uh, the girl who knew too much and Bird. So, okay. Because yep. that's. And, and to me, that one definitely is more of a post-Hitchcock than a proto-Jalo, as I was yeah. mentioning before, because it's very Hitchcock uh, with a French flavor. So I'm going to take that one out. And here's a spoiler, probably, for the rest of this episode, but I would put Shadow of Death as my number five. Ugh. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. It, the the first time I watched it, I was so confused and frustrated, and I'm sure we'll spend a couple hours covering all those reasons. <laughs> but the more I watched it, the more I appreciated it, and I've seen it, I think, four, maybe four and a half times since wow. then. And uh, for me, it's just it's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Plot-wise, of course... Like everything else uh, I watch, I, I just, I kind of uh, zoom in on the plot holes and things that don't yeah, make right. sense. But in this case, I kind of had fun with it. So yeah. uh, I'll put that as my number five. Well, I mean, look, I, 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 you know, here's here's the bottom line for Shadow of Death. If you... If you're watching it and you just say, look, you know, all of these plot holes and all this this silliness, I'm just going to cast aside. You'll get some enjoyment from it for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But some more than others. Go ahead. (laughs) And it might just be the fact that I've spent the last couple of weeks wrestling with it. And I feel like I finally figured it out. So, uh, okay. Because I did look at my last top 10 list, and I think things have kind of shuffled around a little bit uh, from that. Uh, So uh, for number four, I would put Date for a Murder, which was the last episode we did. And listening to that podcast, it probably sounded like I didn't really like it as much as I actually do. Because the more I think about it, the more I like it. I mean, here's a movie, Date for a Murder. You have the good guy who was, uh, see, I already forgot what the character's name was. Uh, Vince Dreyer. Oh, well, okay. You must be a listener. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, <laughs> he kills three people in the movie, and the friend that he's trying to help kills the other two, and the bad guys, quote unquote, in the movie don't kill anybody. <laughs> Except maybe the Except two the, Norwegian girls. Right, that could the have Norwegian been a legit, girls. Yeah. Well, that could have been a real accident. Who knows? Um, <laughs> and so it, it's, I, I just realized that the other day when I was uh, thinking about it. The, the good guys kill all the people. The bad guys kill nobody. But we're rooting for the good guys <laughs> through the whole thing. And then the ridiculous wig shit. And um, I don't know. I just I had fun with it. Um, and I'm going to interrupt you for a second because we haven't talked about your third um, or is it fourth animated GIF. Um, and again, it, it's brilliant. I loved it, but I didn't. I was waiting to see uh, a wig in your animated GIF. I was waiting to see 
some incarnation of whatever her name was, um, Fidelia. Fidelia. Yeah, for her hair, and you didn't really include that in there, and I'm wondering why. You know, my first idea for the GIF was to kind of just do a mashup of all her ridiculous wigs and uh, steering wheel hair and stuff like that. Uh, (laughs) But as I was making it, I I couldn't think of anything to put together besides, oh, here's him. Look at all the goofy wigs she wears, you know. Right. I wanted it to be kind of uh, kind of like a trailer, but kind of humorous and make, making fun of stupid wigs was just a little <laughs> low hanging fruit. You know, I did. I, the, the Don't forget the melon was that was yeah. my favorite part. That's so great. I loved it. Yeah. And uh, I was just going to have date for a murder and a melon. But then I kept thinking of, I was like, well, let me stretch it out a little more. So I was looking for things that started with the letter M. And I was like, uh, motor carb. And then the manicure. And, you know, I'm, I make these things. This is what you're seeing on the these Facebook GIFs that I put up. Is my mind when it's like 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm half asleep but can't. I'm too restless to go to bed. Right. I, I put meat packing for that one shot. Yeah. And I should have just put meat. And I watched it like as soon as I click to post, <laughs> it hits me. Oh, why did I put meat packing? Right. I did it. Oh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Anyway. I'm thinking one, I'm, one way or the other, it was awesome. I enjoyed it very much. Well, thanks. So I had fun kudos. making it. I think I might go a little more quick and simple with the next ones because... I I waste too much of my uh, should be sleeping time putting these together, <laughs> and then I always screw something up, like the uh, the doll of Satan. That right. one, as soon as I pressed post, I was like, "Oh, it says doll for Satan, not doll of." Satan. And I was like, "Ah, oh, shit! It's too late. I've already uh, posted I, it." You so know people... what? I didn't even notice that. Yeah, you're fine. Oh, okay, cut this yeah. part then. So. Okay. Okay. uh, So for my number three, I have a black veil for Lisa. And what I liked about that was it was a very different type of film for what we'd been doing, where the protagonist is actually a policeman, which you don't expect. And uh, what's her name? Luciana Paluzzi. Hell, uh, just seeing her puts it in the top five. Yeah, yeah, she's great. And since then, I have watched Thunderball, the Bond film that she's in. And oh, okay. As boring and stupid as a Bond film that is, I'll probably watch it three or four more times. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, uh, let me see. My number two is The Possessed or Lady of the Lake. Uh, again, that kind of skirts more post Hitchcock than proto Jalo, but I I like the kind of serious tone to it. There wasn't any campiness or schlock to it, and the fact that it was shot not too far from where I am uh, kind of fed into that. And okay. I thought the story was uh, sufficiently dark. If you look at it close enough and remaining my number one from the last one, 
or the last ranking list we did is Naked You Die. All right. Uh, because that is just a blast of a film. And, <laughs> it sure is. Uh, I was reminded in the last episode when I was talking about the actor that was uh, Professor Andre. Yes. Yep. That reminded me about that film. And I went back and kind of, I didn't watch it. I just kind of clicked through it, uh, stopping on certain scenes here and there. And that film is just a lot of fun and yep. is very intelligently put together. You could tell that yes. there's a lot of thought put into the screenwriting and the shot choices and uh, so that's my number one. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. yeah no, you're right. Um, and what's interesting is um, my top three and your top three are the same. Huh? Okay. So uh, in that order, black veil, the poli- the possessed and naked, you die. And I struggled with putting the possessed first because I think overall, if we're not judging these films on how jolly they are, I think the possessed is probably the best, well, the most well-made film of this group, um, simply because it has so much subtext and um, there's so much emotional aspects that come through in the visuals and the way that the plot kind of unfolds and the way that the characters unfold and the the various scenes where you're trying to figure out you know is this a hallucination is this a dream is this reality um you know that could put it higher than naked you die by some film critics um standards but it doesn't for mm-hmm. me cuz naked you die again um and for for those of you who you know are listening now but haven't seen naked you die there is very little, if any, nudity in the film, and there is very little, if any, blood or gore in the film. So mm-hmm. it is a very... Uh, the, the film title is very... Uh, what's the word? Um, deceptive. That's the word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's still such a great film. Uh, the characters... And I just enjoy I jo- I enjoy films like this. And again, when I'm watching a, what I would consider to be a Jalo, whether it's a prototype Jalo or a classic or a neo or you know an '80s Jalo, I want to see a murder mystery. I want to see a killer that remains, you know, unidentified until the end, who has some sort of crazy psychosexual motive. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what that's what I like the most about these films. And, you know, it's probably why it was hard for me to go through the last, um, you know, 18 or so films because there weren't very many that follow that pattern. But Naked You Die definitely follows that pattern. It's got it reminds me it's probably as close to Blood and Black Lace as you can get for this time period because it's a, a bunch of girls they're all together in like a, you know, a boarding house or a, you know, a school, which is kind of like a fashion house. I mean, um, it just has a lot of similarities mm-hmm. and it's fun. And I don't know, you know, the only, the only downside to naked you die is that if you only speak English, you have to deal with a, a film that's in, that's been subtitled 
And, you know, that has its pluses and minuses. It depends on, you know, your point of view. But I would love to, you know, if they ever found, you know, this this is basically grasping at straws here, but if they ever found the long-lost English-dubbed soundtrack of Naked You Die and decided to put it out as a Blu-ray or something, that would be, I would love that. But, you know, the, the copy that's out now is in great shape. It's a, it's, it's a good quality version. It's just in Italian. So, um, so that's just a, it, it's a small number of, of fractional amount of points that I would take off from it being perfect. But um, other than that, it's, it's in my top five of all time for all the films prior to 1970. Um, but going backwards, since you did five to one, I did three, two and one already. Um, I had trouble with number five. Um, and I don't want to say three way tie cause that's just a cop out. What I picked was deadly inheritance because again, it follows the classic Jalo formula more than anything else. But I also really like the embalmer. I also really like murder by music. And I considered those for number five, but Deadly Inheritance um, has Femi Benussi in it and mm-hmm. um, it's in color. It's in English. Um, it's wacky. It's stupid. It's silly. It's fun. <laughs> um, and I think when we did Deadly Inheritance, we had Matt on the, the podcast. So maybe that's just, yeah. you know, the, my opinion of the film um, is often colored by Matt's uh, interpretation or Matt's take on it. And uh, I think that was the last one we had him on. No, we had him on. Um, after that, we did uh, The Hyena in a Safe, which deserves an honorable mention for me. But like, there's a whole bunch of these films that deserve honorable mentions, like in Terrabang uh, has its, you know, ha- has its merits. Um Let's see. Death on the Four poster was interesting. Doll of Satan was interesting. Psych Out for Murder was was wacky and fun. Um, Carnal Circuit was kind of fun, but they didn't make my top five. So filling in at number four is the Murder Clinic for me, which I originally didn't like because I don't like period pieces that much. Mm -hmm. It just feels like an extra amount of like, ugh, I got to apply to watching it. I don't know why. It's just my own thing. But um, after we did a, after we did an episode on it and I watched it a few more times, I liked it. Um, I thought it was well done. And again, you know, if you look at uh, the films that I have in my top five, Deadly Inheritance, The Murder Clinic, and Naked You Die all fall under that killer is on the loose formula. And then, of course, a black veil for Lisa, I think, is a good psychological giallo thriller um, with a weird kind of twist of a, you know, I don't know, like a what would you call it? Like it's it's very kind of Hitchcockian, um, you know, the the police inspector, you know, who is being kind of portrayed as the good guy throughout the whole movie turns out to be, you know, not so good after all. And, you know, we saw that in so sweet, so dead, um, a few years later. Right. Um, so yeah, 
Yeah, because with uh, police characters like that, you go into the film expecting them to be the hero, and then you find out that in a lot of ways they were the victim. And that kind of turns it upside down right, in an interesting right. way. Even though it's kind of spoiled that in the title, A Black Veil for Lisa, and once you find out that Lisa is the cop's wife, you kind of see where the ending's going. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially uh, since the whole f- the whole film is a flashback, right? I don't remember. Maybe. I guess. Yeah, I mean, like they start the very beginning of the film starts. Oh, right, with her yeah, at yeah. The, the intro is her with the right, yeah, exactly yeah, with the black veil, yeah, right. So, but one of the things that I'm doing right now, just spontaneously, is taking the other proto jolly that I really like. And putting them in the list and wondering if any of the ones that I just said are in my top five are no longer in my top five because they've been bumped out. And so I've added libido, blood and black lace and uh, Lindsay's uh, quiet place to kill to the list. I also have perversion story, which is the Fulci film. Um, you could also say the girl who knew too much um, could be in there, um, but naked you die would certainly be in there. I think still. So, anyway, um, that's what I got. So you, so you have Shadow of Death, Date for a Murder, Black Veil, uh, for Lisa, The Possessed, and Naked You Die. That's your top five. So. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. I'll put those in the notes in case anybody cares. And maybe we could find out what the listeners think if they care to maybe rank their top five. I wonder, you know, like what's the best way to do this? You could always do, I could put a poll on the Facebook page and say, here's the 18 films that we've covered over the top two years. Vote for your favorite. And then we take the top five, but that's not really the same thing as asking people what is their top five. And if I were to ask people what is their top five, it would be more about, hey, why don't you send me an email? (laughs) Yeah. And then I don't know how many emails I would get. And, you know, then you'd have to tally them up. And I remember we did that before and Matt had some sort of weird formula where he would figure out, you know, how to take everybody else's top fives and smush it all into one ranking, but I don't know how he did it, but, Hmm. but yeah, um, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out subway ladies and gentlemen to, to do this on the Facebook page where you can vote for your favorite for the last of the last two years. Why not? I mean, you know, what else do we have to do? (laughs) (laughs) What else do we have to ask you to do? (laughs) Right. All right, everybody. Well, it is now time for us to discuss today's deep dive. It is the last of the proto Jolly films that we'll be covering for a while. It is from 1969. The film is called Shadow of Death. (laughs) 
to talk about the specific things that went into the filming and the production of The Shadow of Death is our good buddy, Al. Take it away, Al. Okay, Shadow of Death, 1969. That is, in fact, only one of the many titles that this film had. I found it under the title Macabre. Also, uh, the Spanish original title was Viaje al Vacio, which translates into Journey into the Void. And that's important because this is a Spanish and Italian co-production. The Italian title was L'Assassino Fantasma, which means the assassin ghost or the ghost assassin. And a secondary Italian title was Il Vuoto Intorno, which is the emptiness around or the surrounding emptiness. And that was also one of the alternate English titles, uh, The Emptiness All Around. Another was The Invisible Assassin. The French title was L'Assassin Fantôme, which is the assassin phantasm or the assassin ghost. And one interesting thing I thought about all of these titles that we've said is I don't really think they describe the film that well at all. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I agree. Even Shadow of Death, like... I mean, it's close because... You know, if you if you take if you're thinking about the word shadow and putting it in the context of, you know, a shadow, the shadow world or the dream world or things aren't quite what they seem shadow, maybe mm-hmm. that applies. But um, the other stuff, eh. There's yeah, all no the assa- all the emphasis on assassins, you know, the invisible assassin, the phantom fa- assassin, or the ghost assassin. What? Only one I person mean, I, dies. In are are they are they referring to Mueller or Mueller? Is he the assassin? Well, he's one of the victims because I mean there are two people that get killed, and. One, I think one of them is almost by accident at the end, towards yeah. the end. Um, I don't I think it'd be kind of hard to think of a more fitting title considering what happens in the story, but uh, because Gaslight has already been taken for another yeah. film that kind of does the same thing. Uh, anyway. Well, I think that the point being made here is that all of these titles were probably meant to just um, be eye-catching, you know, and, and right. get people get people to, to to notice, not necessarily to describe what's going on. But right, we digress. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because it's an Italian-Spanish co-production, uh, the two companies that were involved from Madrid, Spain, one was Leda Films. And from Rome, Italy, Meteor Films. The producers, there are two credited. One is Diego Alchimide. I assume he's Italian, but I did not find any biographical information. But he has 11 production credits between 1963 and 2000, including Umberto Lindsay's Nightmare City which is a sort of zombie film from 1980. 
And it seems like every episode we're talking about Nightmare City, at least for a second. So or or Joe Diamato. Yeah, thank God I didn't have to think about him for this one. But <laughs> uh spoiler. Another credited producer is Rafael Vasquez. He was born in 1929 in Tampico, Mexico. I found no information for his death. So uh, if he is still alive, he's doing pretty well for himself. He has five production credits between 1964 and 1973. And this was right smack in the middle of those as number three. The two before and the two after did not seem to be related to this particular genre or anything that might interest a Jalo slash horror fan. So uh, it was nothing that I recognized. The release was 91 minutes and it was released in Italy on June 6th, 1969. And interestingly enough, I saw a note that all the parts of the major characters were redubbed into Italian. I okay. don't know if that means that it was recorded originally in Spanish because one of the main actors is definitely American. So I don't know if it was one of those deals where everybody just spoke their own language and then they dubbed everything afterwards. But I thought that was interesting. Well, I noticed that the Denise character was her her lip movements were synced up with the English, so I don't know if she's the American yeah, or not. I noticed yeah. that too. Well, actually, she's not, but... She's not, um, right? She's Spanish, no. right? Right. Mm-hmm. But I did notice that. <coughs> okay, even though it was released in Italy on June 6th, it was not released in Spain until November 3rd of 1969. And... I have no information about why that was, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. The director and main writer of this film was a man named Javier Seto. He was born in 1926 in Lerida, Spain, and unfortunately he passed away this very year, 1969, in Madrid. He was 43 years old, and I could find no specific information regarding his death. So... Uh, maybe it was a car accident or something sudden. And Wait, he was 43? That doesn't sound right. From 26 to 69. Oh, I thought you said he, he died this year. No, no, no. No, he was born in 1926, and he died in 1969, the same year that this film came out. Oh, oh this I was, see. Gotcha. This was his last film that was released. He had 26 directing credits between... 1952 and this one 1969 the film of his that i saw a lot of uh, attention paid to online was one called la llamada which translates to the call but the english title was the sweet sound of death and that came out in 66 it was a film where a young man's girlfriend dies but then her ghost comes back and talks to him, and that is the sweet sound of death, I guess. I have acquired it, but I haven't watched it yet. But uh, there seems to be a lot of respect in the uh, European cinema world for that. 
He also has 16 writing credits between 53 and 69. Uh, a lot of them were films that he also directed, including this one. Uh, one was called The Drums of Taboo, which, of course, it kind of piques one's interest. <laughs> and it is also from 66, the same year that he made the one that all the critics loved, The Sweet Sound of Death. And in The Drums of Taboo, a drunk sailor finds a Samoan princess washed up on the shore, dot, dot, dot. So, oh boy. That, that sounds interesting. The other credited writers include a couple guys that have some very legit Jalo uh, cred. Santiago Moncada. He was born in 1928 in Madrid, and he died in 2018, but I don't know where. He has 63 writing credits between 66 and 2003, including Baba's Hatchet for the Honeymoon, Martino's All the Colors of the Dark, and a few Spanish films that uh, I've seen and think are very cool. One is a Western called Cutthroats 9 from 72. He was in what I would call a pseudo-Jalo, The Corruption of Chris Miller from 73, and a film that I've mentioned on here before, Bell from Hell, also from 73. Hmm. And if you enjoy Jolly, I would recommend those last two if uh, you get the chance. The other credited writer is Gianfranco Clerici. He was born in 41 in Bergamo, here in Italy. And as far as I could tell, he's still alive. He has 67 writing credits from 66 to 2005, including The Bloodstained Butterfly, Don't Torture a Duckling, Five Women for the Killer, Cannibal Holocaust, New York Ripper, Murder Rock, Delirium, Photos of Joya, and Phantom of Death, which I've seen people on our group discussing recently. That has Edwige Fenech with Donald Pleasance and I think Michael York. So, mm, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty solid uh, connections to the jolly that we're more familiar with as Italian films. The cast. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. In this film, we have two brothers, and they're fortunately they're twins. So I only had to look up one actor's credits for those two characters. <laughs> and that is a man named Larry Ward. He is so American. He was born in 1924 in Columbus, Ohio. And mm. he died in 1985 in Los Angeles, California. He has 42 acting credits between 54 and 82. And looking at his credit list kind of reminded me of the Leonardo DiCaprio character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The first part of his career, he was doing TV shows like okay. Outer. He was doing things like Outer Limits, Lost in Space, and Gunsmoke. Then he came to Italy for exactly four films: three spaghetti westerns plus this. And then he re he returned to America and returned to television, where he acted in episodes of shows such as Wonder Woman, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, and he was on two separate episodes of MASH, playing two separate generals. 
So I'm not sure how he pulled that off. Maybe he had a mustache for one of them. Okay, the one that we've been discussing already a little bit, uh, his wife, well, one of the twin brothers' wife, uh, her name is Denise. She's played by an actress named Teresa Quimpera. She was born in 36 in Barcelona. As far as I could tell, she's still alive. She has 111 acting credits between 66 wow. and 2016 and one that caught my eye because it is a film that i have watched it's kind of like a spaghetti western but it's uh the main characters are so imagine something like uh the good the bad and the ugly but they're all beautiful women okay this film stars brigitte bardot and claudia cardinale it came out in 71 uh, it's a little more lighthearted than Sergio Leone stuff, but uh, if you've ever wondered what hot Euro babes look like with cowboy hats, I would point you in that direction. <laughs> she was also in a 76 film called Sequestro, which was kind of a take on the Patty Hearst abduction story, kidnapping. And that stars Paul Nashi. And... If you find yourself watching this film and impressed with the talents of Teresa Gimpera and you thought, I would like to see more of Teresa Gimpera, Sequestro is where you need to go because you will definitely see more of her. Yeah, we don't see very much of her in this movie. You see a lot of her in Sequestro. Okay. Okay. There is a... Um, let's say a blackmailer who's our, at least our first bad guy in this film. He is played by Giacomo Rossi Stewart. He was born in 1925 in Perugia, Italy, and he died in 94 in Rome. He has 96 acting credits between 53 and 89, including Bava's Kill Baby Kill, the previously mentioned The Weekend Murders from 70, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave from 71, and he plays the main bad guy in Bloodsucker Leads the Dance from 75. There is a second woman in this film who kind of gets dragged into the plot. Uh, she's kind of the innocent victim of the film. Her name character's name is Annie. She's played by Silvana Venturelli. I could not find any biographical information about her. She only has 10 acting credits, but she has those 10 credits between 68 and 71. And, like Teresa Gimpera, if you would like to see more of Silvana Venturelli, you can watch Camille 2000 from 69 or Licorice Quartet. Licorice, spelled L-I-C-K-E-R-ish, from 1970. And I haven't seen those yet. Now, it may just be personal preference, but I think if, you know, if I can only pick one, I think I'm picking the Annie character. Mm -hmm. But... You know, it's it's a tough choice because I think that uh, 
the other character, the character who plays Denise, is very attractive as well. Right. She's kind of a uh, backstabby bitch. But anyway, yeah, she is. That, that's me getting personality in the way of my lust. But, yeah, we talked about this before. Yeah, yeah, we should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I came across when I was looking up this film, they are both blondes. Uh, Teresa Quimpera and Silvana Venturelli. And in Spain, especially at that time, blonde hair was considered exotic. And I, I think it makes sense if you assume that a lot of Spanish people are more brunette or dark haired. Mm, okay. And the fact that this one film had to knock out blondes in it, uh, I think, well, I don't think it was an accident. I think it kind of ties into the plot, but we'll get to that eventually. Well, I, and I kind of think that Denise is a, I don't know. She seems more of a strawberry blonde to me. Not very, but there's just something about her, her hair that's got a little bit of a reddish tint to it. Very yeah. minor though, compared to um, the Annie character. So Right. Annie's was more of a, uh, I don't know, is that a concrete blonde? Or yeah, I don't know. Bleach blonde, bleach blonde, just lighter blonde, natural blonde. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Curtains match the drapes, blonde. (laughs) Cuffs and collars, right? (laughs) Okay. Uh, The music for this film was composed by Franco Michalizzi. He was born in Rome in 1939, and he has 63 composition credits between 67. All the way up to 2022. So, I assume he's still kicking. Uh, He had credit... Well, he received credit for two Tarantino films. Once Tarantino ran out of 70s one-hit wonders to put in his movies, he started (laughs) foraging through Euro cinema. Uh, The score that that Michelizzi wrote for Italia a Mano Armata which is Armed Italy, a Polizio Tesco film, I believe. Uh, the score from that was used in Death Proof and a kind of comedic spaghetti western called They Call Me Trinity. The score for that, or at least the main theme for that, was used in Django Unchained. Okay. And let's see, cinematography. The cinematographer was Antonio Piazza. I found no biographical information about him, but he did do 15 films between 62 and 2008. There was only one film on his credit list besides this that I had even heard of before, and it involves kind of a little sidetrack tangent. Have you ever heard of the Italian porno star woman who became a member of the parliament over here? No. Okay. That was kind of a big deal at the time. Her very first porno film, her stage name was Cicciolina. So in 79, she debuted, she began her porn career in a film called Cicciolina Amore Mio. Chicholina, my love. Uh, 
the cinematographer for that was the same cinematographer for this. And her real name is Ilona Stoller, and she was elected to the Italian Parliament in 1987, just eight years after she began her porno career. Huh. And it was a big scandalous thing over here. And I bet. Yeah, and I didn't look her up too much, but she her political career lasted a lot longer than her porno career. And the last I saw of her, she was on a kind of survivor type reality show that they have over here called Island of the Famous, where they take people that are not really famous or used to be a lot more famous, uh, basically desperate celebrity types or celebrity wannabes, and they drop them on an island and vote people off. Right. So she's doing that now, but she's in her 70s now. And from the looks of it, she still thinks she looks like she did in 79, <laughs> which is kind of soon. But anyway, that's it. That is all the production notes that I have. All right. Well, I did want to, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I really did enjoy the, the music and the soundtrack in this film. I know we talked about, I think last episode, we talked about how the, the soundtrack for Date for a Murder was um you know a contributing character almost to the film itself and i think that uh maybe not so much with this one but i think this was done pretty well um the only thing is that there's no party music that i can remember you know like when i make the when i do the post production and i put music in I like to mm-hmm. start off the podcast with music from the film, and then I like when we when we introduce the deep dive. I like throwing in like the main theme, or right. maybe whatever it is that runs during the credits. Like in this case, it's the dun 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 dun, dun piano music. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, I can't recall in this film that there's any sort of you know, kind of lighthearted or frivolous music at all. Um, um, except maybe like, you know, when when they put the record on. Yeah, uh, I was about to say, I really like the music in this film, but I would say that with an asterisk, and then the footnote would be the non-diegetic music, meaning the music composed yes, and overlaid. That, you, that, the, that the characters did not hear. Right, so... People get this confused all the time. Non-diegetic is music that the director puts onto a scene for the benefit of the audience and the characters inside the film do not hear that music, just the audience. Right. Right. And diegetic is the same thing with fewer calories. (laughs) No, it's uh, non-diegetic is like when a character in the film plays a record and you hear the music and that happens a few times in this and that music i didn't like as much i preferred the the score okay the non-diegetic score but my my favorite use of that in giallo films is in tenebrae and it's the scene where the two lesbian couple like the lesbian couple 
um, you know, the killer is at the apartment. Yeah. And, and they're playing the main Tenebrae theme, the, the theme that you've heard since the beginning of the film. Right. And they the come home from the bar and she puts a record on. Yeah. But you right? don't know that she has the record on like the, 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 the camera is moving around and it's going, uh, you know, over the top of the building and then it gets around to the other side. And then, um, the one woman starts screaming, shut it off. And then the, <laughs> the other woman goes over to the record and, and pulls the needle up on the record. And then the music stops and you're like, oh, okay. We're listening to what they're listening to. There's a couple of, right. uh, of films where that, where they do that really well. And I can't remember some, there, there's one, uh, I think the main theme in what have you done to Solange is like that too, where they listen to, that same theme that gets played when the credits roll, but they listen to it like on the, on a record or something. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, no. So this is, it was memorable. I mean, it, definitely not the best film soundtrack, you know, compared to some of the ones from the, the later years, but um, definitely memorable. I think. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Okay. But so oh, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, if you're looking for something upbeat, you'd have to go with one of the the record musics instead of, well, one of the diegetic tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. And maybe I will. <laughs> well, yeah. Shadow of Death. Ugh. Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> do you hate it that much? First of all, um, for those of you, and I do this every time, for those of you who haven't watched this, there is a very good copy on YouTube. I think it's edited because you mentioned that the film is 91 minutes and the version on YouTube is an hour 22. So I'm not sure what, what has gotten cut out. It may be in my notes, like where I wrote WTF that may be because they cut out a scene. Um, I don't know. Um, hmm. But I know that it, it appears that this got at least a DVD release, if not a Blu-ray release, because it's um, the visual quality of it is is very high. Um, but anyway, go to I'll put a link in the show notes for where you can watch this. There is a YouTube channel called Film and Clips, and if you search for macabre parentheses Shadow of Death, and I found it by by typing in Shadow of Death. 1969 because it's such a generic title that it comes up for other things. Um, that's where you will find it. And uh, hopefully it'll stay up there for everybody so that you don't have to go and pay for it. Cause I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> okay. Shadow of death. Um, what can I say? Uh, let's start out by saying that there aren't that many characters in this film. So we'll talk about them right off the bat. You have uh Muller or Mueller who is the guy we see first with, you know, all dressed up like a Jalo killer. Then you have John and Peter. Now John is some sort of businessman. Do we even figure out or, or get told like what he does for a living? Um, I don't really understand John's job. I mean, I know Peter, his brother, is a pharmacist or he works in the pharmacy. He wears a white lab coat. And he's also an ex-Vietnam veteran. 
So there's that. Okay. But so what does John uh, do? I think John is some sort of uh, pharmaceutical or pharmachemical engineer or something. Because the story is that. Shit, now I'm getting it mixed up. Okay, John is the husband, right? John's the husband, yes. Right, okay. So Peter had to come back and beg John for work. And right. I think they that John just kind of put him behind the counter at the pharmacy. Right. And I assume that he already owned the pharmacy because he and his wife live upstairs. Above the pharmacy, yes. Right. And see, that's part of the reason I was so confused. The first time I watched this movie, as soon as it ended, I had no clue what happened because I kept, <laughs> yeah, let's have a movie with two twins and not give one of them a, a mole or right, something. an earring or something. Yeah. And it doesn't matter because one's impersonating the other half the time. And, and yeah, well, that, and that's why you can't give them some sort of distinguishing trait because, right. They yeah. are impersonating each other, so. I mean, they do this token thing where when I'm going to become my brother, I'll take out my comb and comb my part the other way or some something <laughs> like that. But he does it like 10 times and you forget, okay, who's not just who he is, but who is he pretending to be? Is he right, pretending right. to be his brother now or is he pretending to be him or is he actually being himself? And as confusing as it is with two twins, one impersonating the other from time to time. Towards the end of the film, they throw in a third element that makes identification of what the hell is going on even crazy. Correct. Correct. And uh, the first time I watched this, when I see somebody standing inside a pharmacy wearing a white lab coat, I assume that he is the pharmacist. You're right. Not right. Sure. The pharmacist's assistant. Or and some then sort there's of clerk a clerk or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I thought. Okay, he was the husband because he's the pharmacist. And isn't exactly. the pharmacist the husband? That's, that's how I felt and then, about it, too. Wait, now they're talking like he's not? Are they talking like he's not because he's not? Or because they want somebody else to think he's not? <laughs> well, even in the very beginning scenes, you know, you have the scene with the guy in the lab coat who yeah. is working at the pharmacy and then he goes upstairs um and and you know and, and discovers Denise and the the, the blackmailer together and yeah. then he takes her up to the bedroom at the end of the scene and yeah. you don't know first of all if that's the same guy from the pharmacy and or is that her husband but i mean if 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 you're watching this cold you're thinking this is all the same person. And yeah. actually it is all the same person, but. But it's not the person you think it is. Right. It's not the person you think it is. Correct. Correct. Because you go into, a, and here in Europe is very common for the downstairs or ground floor of a building to be some sort of storefront or business. And there be residential spaces above. Sure. Nine times out of ten, whoever owns what you're walking into probably lives right upstairs. Correct. It's, it's okay. A, it's all, I mean, you, Makes it's sense. a safer bet than not, right? Right. So, our blackmailer guy, have we described him 
too much? Or no, no, just... I haven't really started that yet. So oh. real quick. Okay. Well, um, um, yeah, I'll wait till you get there. Okay. So so the so we get the before we even meet Denise and John and Peter, we get the opening credits, and the opening credits was like gave me the cinematic Jalo equivalent of blue balls. If I'm if I'm <laughs> going to be so um, crass, you know, here's this opening scene and it's got this really good piano uh, tense music you've got the feather in the fedora you've got the guy driving his car you've got the dark glasses you got the black gloves um it is so classic giallo credit sequence um he's got a scar on his face but ultimately by the time we get to the end of the credits we see his entire face, including we can see through his glasses. So mm-hmm. if you're thinking that, hey, maybe this is our killer, like, you know, the opening to Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, for example, um, the killer is driving slowly down the street to pick up a hooker and he's dressed like a killer. And when I watch this, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to get sort of the same deal. Like this is the same vibe. I'm seeing black gloves. I'm seeing, you know, it it had all of the earmarks as you, as they say for uh, what I would expect to be a classic Jalo, but it it isn't. And once we realize that this character who's dressed all in black and is trying to look um, secretive Mm -hmm. is really not trying to be that secretive. I mean, (laughs) Um, before the, before the credits end, we are moved away from this close up shot of him driving the car and we see the rolling Hills and he eventually drives into this urban area of, I guess they're in Spain. Are they in Spain? Yeah. That was something I kind of blanked right over during the production credits. Um, this film was shot on location in Spain. In four different towns, Elorio, Durango, Bilbao, and Beriz. And I think different parts were shot in different towns because I couldn't find any one town that had more than one shot that I could identify in the film. Okay. But I also saw that uh, Cinecitta in Rome was credited. And it must have been they shot the exteriors in Spain and then maybe the interior sets were okay. in Utah. Yeah, I saw I noticed that too actually. It was something that when it popped up on the credits I was like, "Oh, I recognize that." Yeah. Okay. So eventually so, uh, he arrives into town. Oh, were you were you going to were you had something else? No, I was just going to say the the one place that I could verify with Google Maps, this scene here where he gets out of the car and looks around and then he walks around the corner to go to the pharmacy. That is Elorio. Spain. Okay. Okay. And the rest of it, I think uh the train track scenes that we see, I think we're in Betty's and the rest of it's just kind of a, a mishmash of Durango and Bilbao. So Okay. That's it. Okay. Well, and you know, um one of the things that's interesting is like the first few shots that we see of Mueller driving it's very rural, but eventually he gets to a town and 
the rest of the movie is in a very urban environment, though it doesn't really, it doesn't matter that much. Um, except for, you know, the scenes with Anne or Annie, the fact that, Mm -hmm. you know, she's got this little flat in, um, in this, uh, uh, this complex, but, um, you know, even, even though it's not, you know, Rome or Milan, it's still considered, I would consider it to be an urban environment because of how densely populated it is and how close together all of the, you know, all of the people are and the, and the residences and the buildings and whatnot. So um, I'm saying that simply because it's a, it's a criteria mark for the Jalo score. I think that this film scores high, even though I didn't go through it um, simply because of all the things we just said, you got black gloves. Um, that's going to be, at the very top. Um, anyway, um, so Mueller, we don't know his name is Mueller yet, but Mueller arrives into the town and he goes to, over to the pharmacia. Um, and we zoom in on, uh, at this point, it's Peter. We zoom in on Peter and, you know, he's got the blonde hair, the blue eyes, and he's in the white lab coat. And um, Mueller comes in and asks for an aspirin. And um, he says, I'm not in a hurry. He pays his money and gets his change and leaves the pharmacy. And there really isn't much else to that interaction. They don't talk about anything. I think he says something about, he asks him some other question about the town or I, I, I don't remember what he says, but. I think there's a little bit of small talk that goes on, but for the most part, he takes his aspirin, he leaves, and then he quickly, uh, or not quickly, but he kind of, uh, you know, makes an effort to 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 be um, secretive to the point where he doesn't want to arouse suspicion. But he walks in the side entrance and up the stairs to the apartment, um, and then we see Denise for the first time. So, um, and I think she's wearing her little purple nightgown teddy outfit when she opens the door. And, um, Um. she's very attractive. Um, her face is very, I don't know how old she was in this, in this film, but she looks very, very young. Her face is flawless. And of course, they only could do so much with makeup back then. They didn't have AI or any sort of CGI to make people look younger. So um, (laughs) she's working with what she's got and she's doing a good job of it. So um, (sighs) Mueller and Denise have this little bit of dialogue where I guess we're supposed to understand that they know each other. Um, and he says that he needs, like, I'm going to ask the first stupid question already before Mueller finds out what Peter and Denise are up to. Why is he there? Okay. Well, it's not a stupid question because the answer is stupid. (laughs) Uh, Like you said, the intro to this gives you Jalo blue balls, right? Because you yeah. see him driving. He's got the dark glasses, the black gloves. And I'm the 
the first time I saw this, I'm thinking somebody's about to die. Yeah, I can't right. wait to see. And then you find out, oh, he's a blackmailer. He's not a killer. He's a blackmailer. That's his oh, profession. That's, yeah. Well, it is now. Yeah. That's kind of boring. And this is his uh, master plan. Okay. He's going to go to this woman that we find out he used to know before. And they used to kind of have a fling together in Algeria. His big plan is to tell her that unless she gives him money, he's going to inform her husband that they had a, they were lovers in the right. past. Okay. So basically, if you don't pay me, I'm going to tell your husband you weren't a virgin when you got married. Right. Which he probably noticed on the Knew honeymoon. already. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And what the big fucking deal, you know? Well, now, is that something that you inferred or is there somewhere in the um, in the film where I missed that that was why he was asking for money? Well, OK, he doesn't come right out and say it, but as soon as whoever the dude downstairs was comes in into the room. uh she says, I'm not going to introduce you to this man because I've talked to you about him. Uh, and then she just kind of deflates his whole, I was his mistress before I knew you. Right. Now he's trying to blackmail me. And then he plays it off like, no, I was just trying to borrow some money. But I, <laughs> it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, and eventually he gets smart enough to realize in a few scenes later where he goes to the gas station and runs into John and John doesn't recognize him. And so now he knows that something is going on between Denise and Peter and there is a twin brother. I think that's the first time that he realizes and we as a, as the audience realize that there's another person that looks just like the person we just saw. And now right. he's got a real reason to say, I've got a good, you know, like I've got a good reason for blackmailing now because um, I a, can a better tell reason. The one yeah, better reason. I can tell the <laughs> one guy that the other guy's getting it on with his wife. But before that okay, happens, okay. he doesn't really have much of a reason. He doesn't have anything. Right. I mean, so, okay, this guy, Who's dumb enough to think that he's going to get paid to tell somebody's or to not tell some woman's uh, husband that they used to bang long before they met. Okay, that's a stupid plan from a stupid mind. But then this guy goes to a gas station and he sees what appears to be the exact same guy. He's smart enough to figure out, oh, he didn't recognize me. That guy or the husband or so I thought that I just left must have a twin brother. But then he takes it one step further. The one that was in the pharmacy and the one that helped himself into the house upstairs and the one that she spoke to as if it was her husband, he's not really the husband. He's a twin brother's... Uh, he's a husband's twin brother who the husband took pity on and gave a job as the cash register jockey in his pharmacy. I mean, Okay. <laughs> how would you infer all of that though? Like how, how would you, you know, like, I mean, I kind of knew that because I read the synopsis where they said there's a twin, you know, 
But the yeah. fact the fact that at this point, Mueller has only seen one guy and he was acting like he was Denise's husband, even though they yeah. weren't formally introduced that way. And yeah, now I all believe of a sudden, it was the husband. He, right. So we run into we run into another guy who looks just like him. My assumption would be that's not the husband, that that's the twin brother, but it's the other way yeah. around. So Right. Well, I guess he just hung out long enough to see which one of them comes out with a white lab coat and which one leaves at night and I I don't know. They just kind of gloss right over that. Yeah, because later on he's sitting in the shadows as as John when John leaves the house to go play dominoes. So Right. You know, he's kind of stalking them or, or surveilling them or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, uh, they have this exchange. Um, uh, Peter, Peter. Yeah. Peter comes up. <laughs> Peter comes up. And now the three of them are in the, in this apartment together. Um and Denise tells him that she doesn't know much about him except that he's a blackmailer and that she was once his mistress. And Peter tells him to leave. Um, but then he asks Denise a little bit more. And Denise tells Peter that she met him in Algiers and that he sold weapons. I think that's what she says. Yeah. Um, or he's involved in weapons. Uh, and Peter says, does my brother know? And Denise says, why should my husband know? And so right. there is the subtle clue that Peter isn't the husband. And then they kiss and Peter takes Denise upstairs. And so now we if you're paying attention, you would realize that, um, you know, we at this point, we haven't seen the second twin. We only know this guy and we know that he's not the husband. Yeah, so we just assume she's married to some other total rando man. Right. But she's having an affair with the pharmacist from downstairs. Correct. And and Okay. And and of course the other question is why why wouldn't the pharmacist from downstairs live up here because shouldn't he be living in the flat above the pharmacy? Um but he's not. Maybe there's two flats because later we see that there are it looks like there are at least three stories in this building, two of which are in the apartment. Well, that's the right? other thing that's confusing, because at some point, Denise goes to um, Peter's house or Peter's flat, and Peter's got some sort of art thing going on where he's sculpting yeah. and drawing things. And that's yeah. obviously different from this, but where does he live? Does he live above or does he live somewhere else? We don't, you know. Well, she really walked over it. there in a raincoat, so it must just be oh, a yeah, few that's blocks true. away. That's true. So um, Mueller leaves, um, gets back in the car, drives to the gas station, like we said. Um, and then we see another man that looks just like Peter, but he doesn't recognize Mueller at all. And so now we know that this must be the twin brother. Um, and we have that scene where, you know, he asks him for a light and he says, you shouldn't smoke here. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Uh, I don't know why you would forget to do that. But um, <clears throat> anyway. Uh, back at Denise's apartment now, John is home, um, but she's actually looking out the window because I guess Peter left 
the pharmacy because they closed up the pharmacy. He's got his lab coat again. Yeah, uh, she's kind of got it. that that afterglow of love look in her eyes. Right. Um, but he's a horn dog because I think like the next time they see each other, he wants to go again. And but anyway, we'll, well get there. oh, that's right. They haven't had sex yet. And that's a key plot point. Or right? they had no. I don't know. It, what, what is yeah, the it, fact we, that she she and Peter had never had sex because that becomes a point of contention later. Yeah, but what did what he carried her up the stairs? What did they do? Go just, uh, having a, a, a crochet? I don't know. Or something? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, Forget anyway. it. This is off of my top five. <laughs> no way. Don't do that. Don't let me sway you. If you like this, you like it. Um, yeah. uh, okay. So there's this really odd handheld shot of Denise as she walks over to the couch and sits down. I just wrote that because I thought it was interesting. It doesn't really do anything or mean anything. But then after she sits down, they switch over to like some stable shot. And Denise and John have a little bit of an argument. Um, I don't remember what the details are, but he basically says, you know, you're unapproachable in some in, in so many words. And then she says, look, I know that the boys are expecting you down at the whatever. So just go. Um, you know, I, I you know, I, I won't wait up or whatever she says. So John leaves to go play dominoes. And then Denise kind of she sits there with the book for a minute or two. But then she puts it down and she goes out. Like you said, um, it's raining and uh, Mueller is watching from the shadows. It's raining. She's got the umbrella. Um, and now Denise is at Peter's house and. Um, they're still kind of doing the sexy time stuff, but then Denise stops and Peter gets very angry as you do when you've got a case of Denise blue balls, <laughs> uh, especially if whatever happened earlier in the day never amounted to anything either. Um, like he's really on edge here. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they talk and Peter wants to know where their relationship is going and, Denise says, this is not easy for me because I'm married to your brother. Um, And then she starts talking about the plan. Um, And she can't, he can't have her until the plan is complete. And um, so now we know that there's something that they're, that they're going to conspire to do. But um, before we hear any more about this plan, we switch over to, um, what the fuck happens next? Oh, Peter gets a call from Mueller, who's hanging out at the Domino place and demands 200,000 pesetas as a ransom or a blackmail. He knows that Denise and Peter are cheating on John. Uh, Denise says, uh, or, oh, I'll get to the, to the next part in a second, but I looked up how much 200,000 pesetas is worth right now and it's $143. So um <laughs> now back then pesetas were the currency in Spain whereas now it's uh euro. 
So yeah. um, the fact that it's worth $143 is probably because it's defunct currency. It's not used anymore. Before the euro took over, I'm assuming 200,000 pesetas was worth more than $143. Um, but it's hard to know without doing some research. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really isn't that much money that they're asking for. But back maybe back then it was. Who knows? So after he hangs up the phone, Denise says, look, we have somebody that we can use as a decoy in our plan. And then I wrote in parentheses, whatever that means. Um, (laughs) Peter says that John is going out of town to sign the contract on Monday. So that's when uh, all of this is going to come together. Um, so then the last scene we see Mueller walking around in the game. I guess it's a gambling hall. Is that where they are? Like, or it's like a rec center. I don't know. Is it a casino? Uh, I thought it's kind of like just a game room. I don't know if they were actually, were they gambling? I don't remember hearing. It wasn't that. obvious that they were, you know, that they were betting. Well, I mean, anything. they might've had some bets going on, but it wasn't like a casino or something. Yeah. It looks uh, more like a cafe than anything, but. Yeah, it looked kind of just like a cafe with uh, game boards and stuff laying around for older men just to sit around and pass time. Part of the reason why I don't like this film is that Larry Ward, Uh I just want to punch him in the face. I don't like the way that he looks. (laughs) I just don't like his look at all. He's not like, you know, Vince Dreyer had this look where you kind of felt like, yeah, he's kind of cool looking. He's like the spy out of control, you know, detective. And, but this guy, he just, ugh, I, I don't, he, he looks too old for himself. He looks too he, old. He's not he very sympathetic either. No, no, he's always angry. He's got a scowl going on all the time. Yeah, and even when they try to tug at our sympathy strings, for me it just doesn't work because either he's the evil asshole twin or he's the pathetic weenie twin. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) There's no happy medium there. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Nobody to root for. The pathetic weenie asshole. Um, Yeah. Okay. So the next scene, we have John and Peter and Denise together. And um, John is getting ready to leave for his trip. Uh, Denise asks, asks him if he's packed his pills. Um, and I don't know if you noticed, but there's a shitload of freaking trophies on the mantle of the fireplace, which I don't know what that's supposed to indicate. Like, I don't know why you would have all of those I don't know what they represent. Do they represent awards? Because usually, like, if you have something that looks like a cup that you can hold with, you know, that has a handle on both sides, it's usually like a sporting thing, right? It's not necessarily an award for excellence in business, you know? At least I don't see it that way. But I don't know what all those are. I have no idea. What are they supposed to represent, you know? Or maybe some of, some of them are kind of, they, some of them do look like honorary type things. Well, anyway, um, I think they do a good job for um, 
you know, the budget and the time period of getting <clears throat> both actors on the screen at the same time. I don't know exactly how they did it. There's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of camera angles from the the ground pointing up, but mm-hmm. I'm assuming they split the screen and edited it in a way so that Larry Ward is in the scene twice even though he wasn't. I don't, you know. Yeah, there's only a couple times where they do that where you right. see his face on the screen well twice on the screen at the same time. Right. And this uh, scene is is one of those. Yeah. And there was an actor credited as the double for I guess the you know the back of the head when he you know, he's talking to his twin. Right. Uh so I obviously and I think I kind of noticed that a lot more. Maybe they put these uh, split screen shots in like this at the beginning so that you're not spending the rest of the movie wondering about it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, obviously they didn't have twin actors, but uh, I noticed I didn't really think about it too much because I saw these and I was like, oh, they're doing the twin split screen thing pretty well. And it wasn't until the other few times I watched it that I really started paying attention to the back of the head because I'm thinking that back of that guy's head got himself a credit on IMDb. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they should give Who an Oscar play? for the, the back of the head. Yeah, back yeah. of the head Oscar. Yeah. Ugh. Okay, well, as John is on his way out, he starts to get a little foggy and a little shaky, and then he passes out. Um, and my first question right away is, did they drug him and we didn't see it or, well, she asked him, did you take your pill? And he's right. like, yes. And yeah. She says, oh, so maybe she switched the pill or did something because, but I didn't miss you know, anything, apparently- right? Like there's no obvious reason why he passes out. It could be his epilepsy. Or it could be something that they well, spiked his drink with. Yeah, I think it... Well, if you notice this one split-screen shot where uh, where I guess Peter says, don't forget that I'm nothing else than your employee. And we see John in the foreground in profile drinking from his tea while Peter is back there near where the trophies are. On the fireplace yeah. mantle. Yeah, and she comes in with the with the tray and pours the tea. Yeah, right. Yeah. So maybe she just dosed them, and they didn't like exactly spell it out for us. They didn't spell it out, right? Okay. So yeah. he passes out, um, and as soon as he passes out, uh, they grab him and they pull him over to the chair. Um, Peter takes his wedding ring off and puts it on his own finger, and <laughs> I thought this was funny. Peter says, now you need to keep him awake. Well, first of all, he's passed out. So what do you mean, keep him awake? I, that doesn't make any sense. And then he says, make sure you give him one cc of narco Venus, which <laughs> is, an, I guess, an imaginary drug. I tried looking it up, but it doesn't exist. That, yeah, that's the first time I heard of that. Yeah. Um, now, at this point, you know, after the third time through the film, you should have a handle on who's who, but 
the first time through, it's still kind of weird. Like who's John and who's Peter? Um, because I don't know. It may be a cultural thing, but for me, if we're thinking that John is the one with the better job and the more accomplished in his career, he would be the one wearing the lab coat and acting like a doctor. But, um, you know, in this particular case, Peter wears the lab coat, works in the pharmacy, and maybe all he does is dispense medication. Um, or maybe he does maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just maybe he's just well, you know the clerk, you know. Over here, when I go into pharmacies, everybody that works there, and it's not a whole lot of people because we don't have like Walgreens, we have like a little mom and pop shop pharmacy thing. Right. And actually, that's a little cultural tidbit people might be curious about. In Italy, uh, certain businesses like tobacconists and pharmacies, right? they have a state license to sell tobacco products or medicine, you know, depending on whichever one you are. And that license is passed down through the family. Okay. So you can't just up one day and say, I'm going to quit my job uh, flipping pizzas and open a cigarette store or a, a tobacco shop, or I'm going to go to college and get my degree and open a pharmacy. You can't do that. Uh, there are two pharmacies here in my town, and they're both pretty small. They only have like three or four employees, and you know one of them is like the son of the son of the son of the son of whoever built a, a business. And they all wear white lab coats. But when I saw this the first time, and I assumed that the man we saw wearing the white coat was the pharmacist, it was because he was the only one there. And we saw him take that coat off and go upstairs to the apartment, which, as I said before, is not uncommon to live right upstairs from where you work. Um. So it kind of threw me for a loop when later we understand that he's the assistant or he's the, the hired help and the guy walking around wearing that, what is it, like an oversized cardigan or something? Some grandpa yeah, like sweater a Mister, like thing. a fucking Mr. Rogers sweater. Yeah. And he looks disheveled and homeless and he's weighing powders on the scales and stuff. I'm thinking <laughs> he's the guy in charge. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, it's, what were you gonna say? I have an update. I I did my little clicky clicks, and it turns out in 1969, 200,000 pesetas, Spanish pesetas, is the equivalent today of twenty four thousand dollars. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds a little bit more worthwhile than a hundred and yeah, but it doesn't sound like a crazy amount either. But well, he's not the greatest know. blackmailer in the world. He's, you know. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't even have a good plan. So, I mean, if somebody said, uh, "Give me twenty four thousand dollars, or I'm going to tell your wife that she wasn't your first, I'd, I'd just laugh in their face. <laughs> <laughs> right? How much do you want? Okay, never mind. I'm like, I'll give you a dollar just for that joke. <laughs> Fuck off, man. <laughs> Well, it was a much bigger deal in 69, I suppose. I guess. Um, Okay. So Peter leaves and goes driving. 
And there's a little bit of a voiceover where he's kind of thinking about what he would be saying to John if John, if he could say what he really wanted to say to John. And, you know, he goes through this thing. Oh, you know, you, I came back from the war and, um, you know, you took me in, but blah, 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 blah. And I don't know. I guess Peter has a little bit of a vendetta against his brother. And it's not really much. Like, it doesn't seem like his brother did him very wrong. It's not like he stole his woman. No. It's like Peter noticed that the woman that his brother was with was attractive and they hit it off. Um, But besides the fact that, you know, he went to war and came back with an injury and that his brother gave him a job. I don't really know what John did wrong. Well, there's another side to that too. They both had equal inheritances and it stated somewhere along the way that Peter ran off and just kind of blew his money. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. I forgot about that. And maybe that was why he joined the army and had, they say Vietnam. So I assume they're Americans. Well, yeah, they are. Cause she says so later. Um, so he's kind of pissed off because he pissed away his inheritance and, um, that's right. Comes Right. And he came back and apparently he was all messed up, uh, injured. And we find all this out as he's driving down the exposition express, which is very helpful. (laughs) And, um, what was I going to say? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back from Vietnam. Oh shit. I'm broke. But my brother who apparently is really smart and responsible, Still has a lot of his money, and it sounds like he's doing contracts in other countries or somewhere else uh, for his brain work, whatever all these little cup trophies are for. And he has a smoking hot wife, and so I covet his wife and his money, and if I play it right, I could end up with both. Right. See what, See what I mean? So he's basically I, just like a bastard to begin with. Yeah. Because you know, if you want to get to your brother's money and his wife is kind of winking at you, it's like, well, she has a shot at she has a way into his wallet. And if I get with her, if I get a way into her, but I'm bum I then you know, the uh the property of transference or whatever that math thing is. The, the transitive property right. would mean, you know, and I think she's attracted to him because if she was with, uh, Mr. Fuck up blackmailer, he was in now Al- in the Algiers. He was a weapons dealer or something. He was like a man of action and adventure and macho, uh, type shit. Here comes my lame pharmacist, uh, nerd husband's twin brother who just got back from war. Ooh, that's kind of exciting. Maybe. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So it's, and and she complains later on in the movie about how bored she is. She wants to go back to Paris. She hates being here. It sucks, you know? So yeah. 
she's looking for adventure and you know look uh she's she's really the problem denise is is the problem in this situation yeah um she's just uh, i'll get into it later but um <laughs> it's it, it, if it wasn't for her it's like it's like it's like eve you know um she bites the apple first and then tries to get Adam to eat it. You know, that's the whole thing. Um, oh, man. <laughs> now we're canceled all over again. Yeah, there we go. Uh, well, I don't so, think any, too many women listen to us anyway. So go ahead. Nah, and if they do, they know what they're in for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so now they ask for it. <laughs> they, I mean, no, they know what they're going to get. You know, like they're they're going to get. Right. You know, we're talking about, you know, a, a, a whole generation of films that are you know pretty much misogynistic to begin with yeah um so now after we get through um this montage we get a little bit more information about their plan and the plan is the opposite of what you would think most of these plans are i'm going to kill my brother or whoever this offending party is so that I can get his money. But I guess the way that the finances are set up, if John dies, nobody gets any money. Um, so they have to keep him alive, but they have to render him incapacitated, make it seem like he's crazy so that they could be his executors and do what they will with his business and his money. That's the plan. The plan is to so drive why do John you, crazy. Why do you think he would have changed his will? Do you think he kind of suspected or had a gut feeling that maybe it would be in his interest if he uh, removed that from the table? And do the they inheritance and the money thing? Do they say explicitly that John has changed his will. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I must've missed that because that's why they can't just kill him. They have to keep him alive and then, Oh, he's, uh, mentally incapable or, uh, whatever they call it incapacitated. So, but was there, to, uh, but like they do identify that there was a point in time where if they had just killed him, that they would get his money and then he changed the will. Uh, I, I don't just know. Don't, she does. Don't that she part. does. I remember her saying that I'm not in the will and neither are you. I don't remember specifically that they said it was a change as opposed to it I have been there from the beginning. Right. Or maybe before he got married, he was some goody two-shoes that decided, uh, I'll just leave everything to some, I don't know, children's hospital somewhere in Spain. Oh, he was just smart. He was like, if I get married, I got to make sure that I get yeah, a prenup cover, and cover your ass. Oh. Yeah. Did they even have prenups back then? I don't know. Probably not. And if they, yeah. Anyway. So Peter arrives in the town where John is supposed to go. He happens to run into a friend of John's who is a doctor who tells him 
to be careful because his epilepsy could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but Peter pretending to be John does not really respond at all um, and drives off. I guess they're at a stoplight. Yeah. Uh, Peter pretending to be John arranges to bump into a woman named Annie. We find out later. Um, she knows Peter. She's friends with Peter. And she thinks initially that it is Peter. <laughs> yeah. And it is Peter. But it he, is Peter. He tells her that he's John. Because again, don't forget, he's wearing the wedding ring. Right. And I think that Annie knows that Peter has a twin brother. He must have mentioned it. Um, On purpose, probably. Yeah, but... Because this is all part of a setup, right? Yeah, but okay, I guess. But how long ago did Peter originally meet Annie? And at that point, I... were, was there a plan in place? Or was it just, hey, I met this woman and we banged and I just happened to mention that I have a twin brother, you know? I don't know. But yeah, don't I know. think it's interesting that as I mentioned before, at this time in Spain, blondes were considered super hot and exotic because there weren't too many blondes. So the fact that Peter would have hooked up with Annie, I wonder if he selected her or was attracted to her because she reminded him of Denise. Because if Denise is uh, not giving him as much as he wants from her, maybe he would find like a a stand-in or a substitute or whatever you would call it. Okay. That's a good idea. But, you know, I thought, and this is just me filling in the blanks because, you know, there's a lot of blanks, um, mm-hmm. that this was a, a relationship from a long time, not a long time ago, but like, this was just somebody that Peter was friends with and that was it. And then he just, well, I don't know. Cause she seems to fall into bed with him pretty quick, even though he's pretending to not be Peter, but I'm right. pretty sure she would have had, she had already had sex with Peter as Peter as Peter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And this is where it gets kind of, well, it got really confusing the first time I saw this. Right. Because later, John... Okay, spoiler. Yeah, well, John but goes later, back. Yes. John goes there pretending to be Peter. Right. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? All right. Well, so Peter gives her a ride home and says, hey, why don't you invite me up for coffee? <laughs> so she says, okay, I can make it pretty quickly. So she changes her clothes and... There's something about the fact that if you bang on the wall, the neighbor hears and will play music and turns the lights on or turns the lights off or whatever. And then there's this other thing that I thought was going to be something important, which is this barrel that you can get cigarettes out of. Um, And Peter knows exactly how to use it because he's been there before. Um, Right. But it comes back again later on. And I thought that maybe this would be a clue that would be an aha moment for one of the characters because they they spend time on it, but I don't think they ever really do much with it. I mean, John. Well, John is there later and tries to get a cigarette out of it, and he can't, or he can't figure it out, or 
there's no more cigarettes yeah. in there or something like that. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't really mean anything. Well, I think that's telling us that Peter has been there before because he knows exactly how the barrel works. Right. And but we know that already, don't we? Later. Yeah. But I think they, they put it here because later when we see John in there and he's folding with like, how the hell would you know, he can't figure out how to make it work? Maybe we're supposed to feel a little bit of suspense. Like what if she sees him dumbfounded by this barrel thing that he should know how to work? You know, well, that could be or maybe it's like just, it would be a tell that he's not who he says he is. Right. Or maybe it's just, hey, in case you didn't know who this is, it's John because he doesn't know how to use the fucking barrel right. to get his cigarettes out of. In case you were still confused as to which one is which. <sighs> yeah, it could be that. But yeah, I think you're the, right. That would be that would be an interesting way to to add some suspense to it. Like, hey, if he's pretending to be Peter and he doesn't know how to use the barrel. That's going to give him away, but yeah, it doesn't. So, when she's taken off that green dress, did you notice the dimples? For a second, yeah. And you know what? When I yeah. watched the um, <laughs> when I watched the YouTube version, I think that may have been one of the things that was cut out because I'm like, isn't there a little bit more to her taking off her clothes? She goes into the well, room. Well, there's a there's another scene later where she does it again, and they're a little more pronounced in the shot. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you are watching the YouTube version, I do have to mention that if you're interested in butt dimples, you're not going to see them <laughs> on the YouTube version. So seek out the the full 91 minute version. I was glad that when I was watching the YouTube version. That that was the version I used to take my notes. That was only a, an, an hour and twenty two. I'm like, thank God, it's only an hour and twenty two. Um, huh. But clearly, that is what was missing. At least part of what was missing, anyway. Yeah, I just noticed the version I have is one twenty eight forty nine. So that'd be almost eighty nine minutes. And I looked at the upcoming Mondo Macabro Blu-ray. It says 92 minutes. So there's like two or three minutes that are missing from the cut I have. Is there a a Blu-ray for this that hasn't been released yet? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's upcoming. It will be released November 14th under the title Shadow of Death by Mondo Macabro. Oh, that's cool. They probably are taking pre-orders right now. I've ordered stuff from them in the past. And there's probably a limited edition red case one that has uh, a reversible cover. Oh, cool. Yeah, I see it. Now, it may be um, the difference between... Well, I don't know if it makes any difference anymore, but I do remember that when you had... Before Blu-rays came out, if you had a video that was in PAL format versus NTSC format, that one of them was longer than the other. Um, oh, because I, of the uh, the extra frame per second. Right. Thing. Right. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it either. But, you know, judging by the fact that the one on YouTube is an hour 22 and the one that you watched is six minutes longer. That's a significant amount, but um, between hundred, you know, an hour twenty-eight and 
and an hour 31. I don't know. Anyway, um, now, now I'm intrigued. I'm certainly not going to buy this because I hate the fucking movie, but I really want to see the ass dimples. And if that's the only way I can see it. All right, never mind. Let me get back on track here. <laughs> you get uh, two more minutes of ass dimples. You get two more minutes of ass dimples. Um, so after, I don't know, she goes to make the coffee and he gets a cigarette and he pretends to, he has like, he, he pretends to have a spell because he's pretending to be John. And right. then um, he attacks Annie. And, of course, the attack quickly turns into sexy time. Um, And I wrote, he pretends to get revenge on his brother himself by having sex with the woman who has sex with Peter, also himself. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I wrote. (laughs) So, basically, the idea here is that he, under the disguise of being his brother goes to this woman's house and has sex with her. Um, and I guess it's because he wants to know, you know, under the guise of, I want to know what it's like to have sex with the woman that my brother had sex with, I guess. Um, after this, are you you talking about John or Peter? (laughs) Talking about Peter. Okay, because this is Peter having sex with somebody that Peter's already had sex with. Right. right? But, but he's pretending to be John. He's pretending to be John. So, so he wants later... To, he wants to experience the woman that his brother had sex with. But he, that's just false because he's really he really already still is... Oh, he's pretending to want... Right. <laughs> he's pretending to be John. Like he... Who wants to bang somebody that Peter's banged? That's the case he's making, yes. Because all of this right. is, all of this leads to the fact that they're trying to convince <laughs> John that all of this happened to John when it really didn't. Um, and they're trying to get Annie to be the alibi. Right. Or to confirm the story. Right. Which makes no sense considering what happens in the end. <laughs> but we'll get there. So Peter leaves, calls Denise, um, and John is now, you know, completely under the effect of the narco Venus, keep him awake drug. Um, Denise, I guess, tells him that everything's going well. Um, after the phone call, Peter takes his wedding ring off and drives his car onto a ferry where he meets Mueller. But I wrote in my notes, he meets with Mueller, but plays dumb. But, okay, so how did he know that Mueller would be there and how did Mueller know that he would be there? Do we know? Uh, There was a phone call, I think. Wasn't there a phone call? Well, I know there was a phone call where he said, bring me the 200,000 pesetas. Yeah. But I thought he said, I'll, you know, I'm, you can bring me to me anytime. I'll be here at the, at the domino place. I, I didn't, 
I don't remember that. I thought he said at the ferry. Really? Okay. Maybe I missed I that. So. so they meet on the ferry and This is where it gets confusing. Peter then tells Mueller that he's really John, pretending to be get Peter, to <laughs> pretending to be Peter to get the information from Mueller. Right? Yeah. Is that right? Okay. But Mueller doesn't believe him. And there's like a little bit of a struggle for the gun, which really isn't a struggle. It's one of them puts their foot on top of it. Um, I don't well, even know. Well, it's kind of not a fair. It is. Whose foot is it's it? It's Peter John's. Um, it's not really a fair fight because Mueller, the blackmailer, has a paralyzed um, left arm. He does? Yeah. You didn't notice it? No. Yeah, his arm's paralyzed. <laughs> it doesn't matter because it never comes up. It never comes but up. When yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Remember when when he first walked upstairs and talked to Denise for the first time? And she looks at the scar and then she looks down his arm and his fingers are just sticking straight out. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wondered it, why she looked at his hand. I thought it was just because he was wearing a glove and she was scared of him. Yeah. And then he does that um that little thing as he's leaving, he stops in the stairwell and he like grabs his arm and pulls it up and sets his gloves on. It it reminded me of that um the constable in Young Frankenstein. I I've How never I've never seen Young Frankenstein. I don't know why. Oh, God. I should. Dude. Okay. Yeah, you definitely should. Anthropophagus but, and Frankenstein. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that could be a double feature. <laughs> yeah. Completely the same. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So anyway, I think this is where Peter's Vietnam training steps in, you know, because he's like, I was, I'm an actual trained soldier you're <laughs> pulling this little pea shooter out at me and, and you have a paralyzed arm and fuck you chop. So. Right. But now so again, we have Peter pretending to be John pretending to be Peter. This is like some inception level of shit. Going yeah. on here. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true now. Okay. So I did notice something and. It's very subtle, and if they really did this on purpose, then I have to give them a little bit more credit than I was giving them before, which is they're sitting in the car. Um, Mueller takes out the gun. Let me get back to it. They've left the ferry. Mueller points the gun at him. Hold on. I don't even care. I'm not editing this shit out anymore. He Okay. He points the gun at him and Peter slash John takes the comb out of his pocket and, 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 and Mueller for a second thinks that he's pulling out a gun and Mueller and, and Peter's like, no, no, look, it's just a comb. And he combs his hair in a certain direction. And then he puts, does he put his wedding ring on after that? Yeah. He puts his wedding ring on after that. So is that he supposed puts the to comb away? Is that supposed to be a tell, like, if he combs his hair with the part on the left side of his head, then he's supposed to be John? And if the part is on the other side, then he's supposed to be Peter? Or is it not that 
cut and dry. I know watching him comb his hair is supposed to signal to us some transition between his uh, assumed identity. But to me, it all looked the same. Yeah. So it's not like I could look in one scene and say, oh, the part is on the left. I don't know if Peter or John just has like a little cowlick hanging down in the front and John doesn't. But yeah, because when he went to go see him, there was a shot where he takes the ring off because he'd put the ring on for his encounter with Annie. Right. And then he takes it off. And but now he's using that to make Muller assume that he or think that he is John. Right. So he's telling Mother Mueller, he's telling him, Look, I'm I was pretending to be my brother Peter, but really I am John. And he takes out the comb, combs his hair and puts the right. ring back puts the on. Ring on. And then um, they drive away and you really don't see much. You don't really see anything else related to what happened between the two of them. Um, And you're not supposed to, but like you're left with, well, what the, you know, what, what happened? Did, did they agree on the money? Did, did the blackmailer decide to leave? Did, Okay, John, so did John Peter shoot him? So in the version you saw, did it just cut off after that? After he puts the ring on and says that, and then stuff? they drive away. Yeah, maybe I need. Okay, to go. it goes into um I guess maybe I have to look at the the, the full version here. I'm going to bring it up. Muller realizes, well, he doesn't believe that Peter is actually John pretending to be Peter. He thinks Peter is Peter. And he says, well, whoever you are, well, he, you are Peter, and obviously you and Denise have some kind of plot to, to uh, get money out of John. And I'm trying to get money out of John as well. Right. And then Peter says, well, you've come along at a very opportune time. You can help me. So I think by the end of this scene, Muller thinks that he is in cahoots with, with, uh, shit. Which one's it? See, I'm already mixing up Peter and John. <laughs> uh, with the asshole brother-in-law. And the wife. Yeah, Peter's the the brother-in-law. And John is a pharmacist, I think. No, Peter's the pharmacist. <sighs> okay, Peter's the pharmacist. John is, John is the husband. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we still don't know. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure because I started taking my notes and I had John 
as the pharmacist and Peter as the brother. And then once I figured out that that was wrong, I had to go back okay, yeah, and yeah, replace. John is the husband. Okay, I, I just get forward to where uh, Denise is shooting him up with the insulin. Yeah, okay. I, well, I've got the... All right, so now... Oh, look at this. Okay, so the Shadow of Death version that I have that I grabbed from Cinemageddon is an hour and 31. So that must be the full, full-blown full version. Let me go back and look for the butt dimples while we're on the subject. <laughs> I mean, why not? Okay. Yeah, I'm right there. Look, it's 26.58. It's a 27-minute mark. She goes in. She kicks off her shoes. She's like, would you like some coffee? You want to hear some music? She takes mm-hmm. off. Oh, yeah. Look at that. They cut that. Ladies and gentlemen, do not watch the YouTube version. Okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I implore you, if you want to see any sort of female flesh whatsoever, the YouTube version is not the one to go on. Um, we get full-blown uh, like topless nudity in this film. Had you not seen that in the... No, it, when I no, it's not in the YouTube. But when I the last time I watched it, I may have noticed it, and then I just forgot. So, yeah, it's uh, it's all with Annie. Apparently, yeah. T- Teresa Campera's a prude. Yeah, she doesn't want to show but... her boobs for some reason. What's wrong with her? Well, not in this movie. So uh, again, if you're <laughs> interested in that, Sequestro, 1976, with Paul Nashi. Go there. She's gotten over it by then. All right. So the next scene, we are back at, I'm assuming, Denise and John's flat above the pharmacy. Uh, John is in the chair. He is awake, but he looks like he's basically comatose. She she, um, gives him some more, what the hell is it called again? Narcovenus. yeah, they call it narco-venous, but then later it kind of switches to just insulin because they get into this whole glucose Ugh. brain theory thing. Ugh. Ugh. So now what they decide to do, and it takes a minute or two to figure this out, they are going to reenact, for the most part, everything that Peter just went through in real life to make John in his delusional drugged out state of exhaustion and whatever else think that it happened to him. They're going to recreate this, the, the, all the things that happened in real time while they put a record on for some reason and there's a couple of things in this sequence that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Peter shows John a picture of Annie. He holds it up next to Denise. And so I guess, and Denise like changes her hair a little bit. So I guess maybe she's pretending to be Annie for the sake of uh, John's hallucinations or his delusions. Yeah, so that would be a direct reason for picking a blonde for this. On top of the fact that I'm sure uh, Peter had a good time banging her since Denise had him on ice. 
so then uh, Peter takes all the bullets out of the six shooter and then they reenact the car scene. But here's the thing. Well, I, he's he's loading blanks into it. Oh, is he loading blanks? Because that comes up later, right? Yeah. The blanks. But In the a scene, kind of messed up way. The scene where they bring Mueller into this and they set up two chairs to pretend that they're in the car. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> this is very good. Way ridiculous. but And is it John? No, it's not John that's sitting in the chair next to Mueller. It's Peter who's sitting in the chair next to Mueller reenacting the scene so that John will assimilate or will absorb the memory to think it was really him that it happened to. Wait, Peter's the husband, right? No, John's the husband. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> There's a bar in New Hope, Pennsylvania called John and Peter's. Yeah. Um, that's what this movie kept making me think of. But anyway. Um. Okay, I'm just going to say the husband and the brother from now on. Okay. Because, I mean, I have the story of the film finally straight in my head, but... You're getting the names back mixed and up. Forth between, I'm getting the names mixed up. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the one sitting down is the husband that they're trying to brainwash. And apparently they had spoken or told him enough of the details about what actually happened in the car that they're he's reliving it and reciting his lines perfectly and right but here's the problem here's the problem and i'm watching this again john who is the guy that they're trying to drive crazy who is the husband okay he's wearing a dress shirt and a cardigan sweater on top in the scene He's, his eyes are closing. He's nodding off. Denise is giving him more injections. And meanwhile, Peter, the brother, the bad guy, is wearing a long sleeve white collar oh, dress right. shirt with two or three buttons open. When you go to the next scene where they're sitting in the chair reenacting the scene on the ferry. <clears throat> yeah. The person sitting in the chair next to Mueller is wearing a dress shirt. Is that now the husband and his cardigan has been removed? Or is it the brother-in-law who's just reenacting the scene? I think that's supposed to be the husband, but now I'm wondering if (laughs) the production crew confused themselves. With the wardrobe? Yeah, because it doesn't make sense. Dude, at one point, I mean, he still on, has that that vacant, drugged out stare. He does. Going on. He does. You're right, but he he seems completely incapacitated. And I I think that it's Peter who is the brother because he's re- <laughs> doing the reenacting, and there would no, be no way that John could do the reenacting. So, oh, so this is how they're telling him. But where is communicating John? To, John's yeah, nowhere in the scene. Like, he must be off camera somewhere. So then they bring okay, Mueller but, down but and they shove him in the back of the up, car. 
whoever it is, husband or brother, <laughs> sitting in the chair, picks up the gun and shoots him twice. Right. Right? With the blanks. With the blanks. Yeah. Now, at this point, you could think maybe he shot him for real because you, you wouldn't know that those were blanks yet because they haven't revealed that. Um. It wouldn't make sense if the man in the white shirt sitting in that chair was the brother. And actually, I think the the whole trick was to get the husband to kill the blackmailer. Or at least think he killed the blackmailer. Right? But what? Okay. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely argue that. Like, and then, you know, after... John slash Peter puts Mueller in the back of the car. The The car opens again and Mueller gets out to reveal to us that he wasn't really killed in the first place. And we, we didn't, you know, I, what I got from that scene was that the brother was sitting next to Mueller in the chair, reenacting the scene from the ferry and off screen somewhere is, John, the husband, who's just taking this all in because like he wouldn't know how to do the reenacting if he hadn't been told the story yet. Like, I think they were telling the story to John. Maybe the idea is they're trying to implant the memory because John, the husband, is practically seeing himself doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but in the ne- dude, in the next scene, both brothers uh-huh. are wearing a white dress shirt. And later on in the movie, both brothers are wearing a white dress shirt. So you it just makes it harder and harder to figure out who's who, obviously. I wonder if the director's head exploded when somebody asked him <laughs> to explain this movie, and that's why he <laughs> Well, okay. So they so they reenact the scene. Whoever they reenact it to, the the end result is that John, the husband, believes that he was right. the one who who took part in that action, which culminated with shooting Mueller and putting Mueller in the back of the of the car, uh, in the trunk of the car. Um, the next scene, they decide just I don't know, for good measure. To give John some shock treatment. Um, <laughs> like it's not. He's not fucked up enough yet. They have to shock him. And I guess that solidifies all the memories. And. After, and it gives us an Alka-Seltzer product placement. <laughs> <laughs> and of course. Um, while. John is. Getting the shock treatments. He's also having flashbacks. Of all the scenes that we've already seen, and I guess, again, this is how he's absorbing these memories and making them his own memories. Okay, this is where it gets a little sloppy, because (laughs) this, like it just started. (laughs) Like it hasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's been airtight up until now. (laughs) right? Yeah, no problems until this. Uh, Okay, well, before I get into that, we see Muller get out of the car 
and pick his hat off of the floor with that uh, feather still in it. Right. Right? Okay, put a pin in that. Okay, now we're watching John sitting in this chair kind of uh, on a Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange with the, the stare in his eyes. Right. And he's having these flashbacks. In the flashbacks, they're showing us scenes of what Peter did at Annie's mixed in. Well, okay, those are things that uh, John did not see with his own eyes. Right. And then they're mixing them in with scenes of whoever sitting in the chair next to Muller, which John might have seen with his own eyes. Or right, probably right, did. Right, right, right. Why didn't they why didn't they edit in scenes from the actual fairy encounter instead of the the faux fairy encounter? Right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Pick one or the other. Either it's, have all the flashbacks be like uh reenactments that they did in the attic or the basement or wherever they are. I mean, it you could think you could answer that in it's such practical terms of they hadn't filmed the fairy scene yet. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And like maybe they were doing some of the editing before they were finishing the the filming. I mean, I don't know if that's and, true, but that could be a reason. They just didn't have yeah, that that part of the film available yet. I don't know. Okay. Maybe it was easier. Maybe there you know, and, well, well, and then the other thing is, well, no, 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 no. I think I understand. Um, in the actual fairy scene, there is no shooting of Mueller. They needed to reenact oh, right, the right, scene yeah. of shooting Mueller, even because it never happened. He, they, from the when they were on the ferry, they drove off, and Peter tells Mueller, "Hey, um, you know." whatever they decided to cut him into some sort of a deal and say, if you help me out, you know, it'll all be to our advantage, but you have to go along with this little ploy. So you need to come back to, (laughs) to, to my brother's house and pretend to be in the car with me while I pretend to shoot you so we can drive my, but why mix that with actual stuff that Peter did that, John cannot have any real actual memories of what we saw Peter do. Yeah, true. I mean, they they could have had... um, Well, I don't know if it would have worked if they had tried to get Denise to play the part of Annie. And then uh, Peter just kind of stage directing John about what happened. But I mean, this whole thing of implanting memories with music and injections is <laughs> you know, obviously the what do you call it the uh, the pseudoscience. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's kind of the the buy of the film. You know, you have to go along with it, or nothing oh, else is going to work. Yeah, for so. sure, for sure. Yeah, you have to you have to believe that this is going to happen, that it could really happen. Yeah. Um. Okay, so while John is having his shock therapy convulsions, they cut to John having an attack. But now he's in his bed. 
and there's a different doctor there and um, Denise is there and she's trying to subdue him and Peter is there and he's trying to subdue him and John is they they eventually calm down his attack I guess from the injection but we now are supposed to take from this that once John becomes lucid again after this attack wears off, that this is the first time since the moment that he passed out when he was about to leave to go on his business trip that Mm -hmm. he's back to reality. And everything that happened before that um, for him was all a dream. Yeah. Because he says it was just a nightmare the last two days. So, um, yeah, I just wrote John is waking up for the first time. Okay. Um, Peter leaves. Denise goes over and gives him, I guess, some tranquilizers or something in an eyedropper. And Mm -hmm. John is basically saying, hey, you know, I'm really glad you're here. Or was it or something like, was this hard for you? Was it difficult for you to deal with this this spell I just had? And she's like, it's always hard for me. And he's like, um, you know, I hope you don't think that I did this on purpose or, you know, you're blaming me for having this attack. And I wrote in my notes right at this point that Denise is a cunt. That's what I wrote. <laughs> and she really is like all she wants to do is steal his money Um she wants to have some sort of fun and games, uh, but in the vein of trickery and betrayal and all this other shit and steal his money and go off to Paris. And like, she's just, she's horrible. She's like lady Macbeth. Well, if she wanted to just leave him, and go to Paris. I'm sure she could find somebody else to gold dig off of. Right. I mean, when she right. was in Algiers, she was doing very well for herself. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't know. There's... All right. Well, after I wrote Denise as a cunt, I continued on with my <laughs> notes. And <laughs> it says, uh, John's talking to the doctor. Um And he thinks that maybe the hallucinations and the dreams that he's recollecting were actually real. So they decide to go down to the car to check for Mueller's body, which, of course, isn't there. But um, did they find he finds a box or something? But I don't know. There's nothing in the box, right? Like the. Yeah, it looked like a Amazon delivery right. trunk. <laughs> so after that, um, let's see. The next he's scene. Check, he's checking the stock in the pharmacy. He's checking the stock in the pharmacy, right. And John is weighing powders on the scale, like you said before. And... um. 
Do they have a discussion about Annie? Is that what happens? I want to put up my subtitles. Yeah, John is at the scales with his, what, brown sweater thing. Peter comes in with his white lab coat, and we get another decent split screen of the two of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. My subtitles you know, I'm not, are terrible. I'm not sure how safe it is to have somebody who's been flipping out for a few days to mix medicine like immediately after. <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs> you think the other doctor would be like, uh, take a week off or something. Huh? <clears throat> yeah, he asked him about Annie. Do you know a girl named Annie? And he's like, oh, no, not at all. Okay, yes. Peter says, oh, it's all in your head. Um, mm-hmm. But John finds Annie's address in the phone book. And then he finds Annie's picture and a gun in his coat pocket that's inside the armoire inside their house, right? Now, see, there's a leap that I didn't quite understand. Okay, I mean, they've implanted memories in John, the husband, right, of Annie and the gun. And um, so he goes to the phone book, and I thought it was interesting that apparently at that point in time in Spain, you could look up phone numbers by the address, which sounds kind of horrifying, but... I mean, American phone books have your address, but you're listed by your name. Yeah. So people can't just drive past a house and see somebody and say, hmm, I'm going to call that girl and ask her out. Oh, her name's Aunt, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. uh... Anyway, so he sees that there is an Annie on San Mateo. Okay. But then he runs upstairs to check his jacket pockets. I mean, what what caused that to happen? Mm, Yeah, I don't know. Like, oh, look, here's a gun in my jacket. Oh, look, here's a picture of a blonde. I bet her name's Annie. But there's nothing between finding the phone number and him running up to the closet to to motivate that, that I could tell. Yeah, there, you're right. Why would he go and look for that? And then the next scene, they're at the table. Um. And John pulls out the picture of Annie and throws it on the table. And um, he's like, I don't know this girl. I know a lot of girls, but I don't know this one. And um, then there's a discussion of John wants to know why they're buying extra insulin. Like, basically, he's saying... um, you know, I noticed that there's an addition, uh, an additional supply of insulin in the pharmacy compared to other months or something like that. And uh, I guess that's supposed to be what that, you know, I mean, in the reality is that they ordered extra so they could shoot them up with it. But why? Why does that work? What does insulin do to help their well, cause? They spell it out a little bit later when he's speaking to um, 
I forget which doctor it was, whether it's the one with the little goatee or the one that he saw in the car. But they mentioned that a uh, some kind of glucose imbalance or lack of glucose in the brain could trigger uh, these weird kind of hallucinations and nightmares and things that he's been having. And I think the insulin is what causes the glucose imbalance in his brain. Okay. All right. Right, because I think insulin cancels out glucose, and that's why diabetics take it, because they have blood sugar issues. Right. If their blood Which sugar makes me gets wonder too low. If diabetics, yeah, if diabetics uh, have the kind of mental problems. But I'm, I assume they give them a huger dose or something. Or it's all just bullshit pseudoscience for the plot. You, so you think, like, diabetics might somehow think that they had sex with their twin brother's friend from the city or something? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I wonder how many non-diabetics think that. But oh, man. I wish I had that memory. I guess that would depend on the amount of glucose. Yeah. I mean, the amount of insulin that you're taking. Because, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm going to go get some glucose. <laughs> That's what I'm going to party with this weekend. A couple of Sit in a folding chair in the middle of your living room <laughs> staring at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> with like an inflatable doll next to you. In a couple of days, you'll swear you had that. Uh, and that record that player. From... The record player, for sure. Yeah, you got to have the record player. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then Peter leaves. Denise puts tranquilizer medicine in the cup. No, John doesn't leave yet. Denise brings over, hey, you should have the tranquilizers. And John's like, no, I'm not going to have it. And this is where, like I said before, the two of them look like, or the, the, the Larry Ward actor, he looks like he should be on Little House on the Prairie and not in a giallo. He just, I'm not. He might have been. He, he might have been, <laughs> you're right. You it. But they both have parts on the same side, so I don't even know why that's even a thing. Yeah, so why all the business with the comb? Yeah. It's, it's like. So, okay. Um, Peter leaves and John asks Denise, you know, you need to help me. I need some help. I'm I'm in bad shape. You know, please help me. Let me hold on to your waist because it's got you've got good waist jewelry on Um, (laughs) that. That belt. I noticed that belt, too. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So then they do this thing, and for a second it was kind of cool because I, it, you know, they play this Paris music, and they, they show up a, a a poster on the wall of the Eiffel Tower, and for a split second you're like, oh wait, where did we go? But no, it's just Denise, and she's fantasizing about life in Paris, and I guess she's back at um, Peter's place because he's got this this the, the sculptures and the art and stuff and. Um, Denise, oh, I had a. Hang on. What'd you have? Shit, where'd it go? There's like one little tiny detail in that scene that I thought I'd point out. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I thought it was kind of interesting. 
All right, that they pan down the uh, the poster of the Eiffel Tower on the wall, and right? And they come down, and it passes over a book that has the binding suspiciously aimed towards the camera. And the title of the book is No Solo de Caviar Vive el Hombre, which is Spanish for Man Does Not Live by Caviar Alone. Aha. Uh-huh. Which is a play on uh, Not Live on Bread Alone. Right, right. So I wonder if that's kind of like a gold diggery type uh, nod towards their ambition to steal this money. Yeah. And, right. it, you know, is that Denise's book or is that peter's book you know because it's peter's house yeah well either one i mean they're both kind of greedy and it sounds like that book is a uh i mean i haven't done the extra homework to look it up and see what the book is actually about but it sounds like it would be some kind of critique of chasing wealth and being greedy but why in the middle of this conversation with Denise in the chair and him standing by the fireplace, do they cut to these outside shots of people walking in the rain and then go back to the conversation? I think it's because she's talking about how beautiful Paris is. Oh, and yeah. how she hates being in this uh, boring, drab place. Yeah, yeah. She's she talks about talk- yeah. She talks about how she's homesick. Yeah, in the squalor. Let's see. At this hour, it's full of lights in Paris, and then smashed to, well, not oh yeah, almost smashed to outside where it's dreary. And she says, "Not the squalor and monotony that mark the hours in this poor country." So I thought that was a kind of cool directorial touch. Yeah. So it's it's related to what she's talking about. I guess I just missed that. So. Yeah. It's a contrast between what you see and what she's talking about. Now, it seems like at this point that John, no, that Peter may be starting to (laughs) um, (laughs) regret uh, his decision to get involved in this scheme. Um, Uh But... Before they can really examine that too much, they switch scenes, and now we're back at Denise's house. She goes up the stairs. John is in bed, and they have two twin beds in this room. I don't know if that's supposed to be their their bedroom, um, but Denise goes into a different room. John comes out and opens the door to spy on her while she's getting dressed. Um, there was a scene early undressed. on where she mentions that they have separate bedrooms because he snores and she can't sleep. Oh yeah. Yeah. Something. That's right. You're right. Yep. And there's more butt dimples. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we could have like a butt dimple off. Okay. So we, we have Annie's butt dimples and we have Denise's butt dimples and I smell a, an animated GIF. Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> Oh yeah, that'll be fun to do. It'll by be the like way, three hours long. By the way, I want to say to anybody who is still trying to figure out how they're going to get their hands on a copy of this film, um, every single version of this film that I have, or not, I'm sorry, not every single version of the film, but every single SRT file, which is a subtitle file that is, um, it's like it's 
an external file that various players like if you watch films on the computer with VLC or if you use Plex to watch movies, you can you can tell it what SRT file to use for your subtitles. I haven't found a single one that syncs up properly. So just be warned that if you want to watch this thing with subtitles for some reason in English while you're watching it in English audio, I don't know why you would, but sometimes like I like to have both on just to see if things are syncing up or if I, if I really did hear what I, what I thought I heard Um, for this film, I've tried about seven or eight different SRT files from various sources and none of them are synced up properly. Now, um, obviously uh, if you want to take the time, you can open up the SRT file in a notepad type program and fix it because an SRT file is basically just um, a timestamp and words. So, um, you know, if anybody wants to take it upon themselves to fix the subtitles file, go right ahead. But if you're just looking to watch it, um, I haven't found a good one yet. So just know that. Uh, anyway. In VLC, can you not adjust the timing of the subtitles? I don't know. I've never done it. But I know on my uh, Samsung smart TV, you can do that. Oh, okay. You can adjust it, you know, back and forth. Uh, I don't know if it's milliseconds at a time, but I mean, you can you can tweak it a little bit because we do that with uh, Cowboy Bebop episodes. Oh, okay. That my son insists on watching in Japanese, so we have to put the the SRT files in there. Ah. And sometimes we have to nudge them back and forth a, a couple seconds well, this forward one, or back. This one is really off. It's like, you know, a new scene has started and then you see some 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 words come on the screen from the previous scene. Oh. So it's pretty bad. Um, Okay. So at the end of that scene is, um, despite the fact that they are married, John does... Uh, wants to see his wife <coughs> with no clothes on and she does not want to show him her clothes. She uh, She's standing there topless with her back to him. And when she turns around and notices that he's there, she covers herself up and then she walks over to the door and then she turns the light off and she slams the door on his face. And I return to my previous statement, which is Denise is a cunt. Uh, yeah. She definitely is. Uh, so, you know, considering the fact that he just got rejected by his own wife, he decides to go downstairs and look in the back of the car again. Um, <laughs> I don't know why he, he's there's There's something going on. He knows there's something that's not right and he can't connect all the dots. He knows that something is involved with the guy and the car and the back of the car and murdered and something, 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 but he just can't um, figure it out. But then he finds a feather in the back of the car. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if he even knows what to do with it or how the feather connects to anything, but he he knows it's important enough to take it and bring it over to the doctor. Right. Right. Well, the pin that I put in, I don't know, a while back, 
maybe four hours ago. <laughs> we saw Muller come out of the back of the car and pick up his hat that had the feather in it that was on the ground outside of the car. Right. Right. So it's not just that the feather didn't come out of his hat. It's that his hat was never in the back of the car. So how's that feather work? But when they dragged him. Right, right, right. I see what you're saying. So they dragged him and made it look like they were dragging his dead body and putting it in the back of the car for the sake yeah. of perpetuating this hallucination. But when he. Exactly. When he was put in the back of the car, his hat fell off. Right. And it fell on the front of the car, like in um, outside. Well, you don't see it falling off, but you see him you come see out of the back and pick the hat up. Right. And the feather is still there when he picks it up. Maybe it's more than one feather. Yeah, but I'm saying the hat, it looks like the hat never went in the car in the first place. Right. But, you know. Well, it's certainly a feather in his cap. That's for sure. Well, for a movie that gives us two sets of bud dimples, I'll let it slide. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, the one thing that I wrote down, which is kind of funny, is that he says, if I find if I find him, I'm a murderer. If I don't, I'm insane. Um, So, you yeah. know, he's in a dilemma that it's kind of like. I'm damned. No way. No matter what happens, I'm I'm damned. Um, I'm screwed here. Um, so he asked the doctor if he's going crazy, and the doctor says, "I'm going to call the neurologist. Um, because you need to, you know, we need to figure out what's going on with you." But John says, "You know what? I am going to go into town first. Um, I have to do one more thing. I have to go into town. Something like that." So then we get, um, well, first of all, before that, before the scene changes, um, we find that Denise has been eavesdropping on this and the doctor knows that Denise is eavesdropping on it. And I don't know if she's like, if the doctor thinks that she's eavesdropping just for the sake of caring for her husband who is not in a stable mental state if that's what the doctor thinks she's doing but she's really spying on him to find out you know if what they've planned is going to work and if if he's starting to figure out shit because he already found the picture of the girl he found the gun and he's asking about the insulin so he's starting to like you know put some of the clues together and you know, why is she hanging outside the doctor's office listening to the conversation? I think in a situation like this where you're dealing with somebody's mental stability, the spouse would be the person who would call the shots once a professional has deemed that person incapable of making their own decisions. So maybe with that in mind, the doctor was okay with her listening at the door because he's already, I mean, he, this is the same doctor that he took to the car and said, look, there's going to be a dead guy in the car and there's no dead guy in the car. So this doctor's already half sold on the idea that this guy's going nuts. Right. And 
it would probably be easier for him to convince the wife to have him committed if the wife could hear the bonkers shit that he's saying in the (laughs) office. And that makes me wonder why John didn't take the photo and the gun along with the feather and say, look, it's not like I just found a feather and said, oh, this came off the... I mean, what if it was like a pigeon's tail feather or something? Like, dude, I find those outside on my sidewalk. But (laughs) if you have a photo of a girl and a fucking gun, you know, that might go to help your story a little better with the doctor. Right. But he doesn't. So. All right. So, in the next scene, um, John uh, Wait, let's see here. It's a very quick scene, and I like the music in this part. It's like mm-hmm. and um, Peter notices that John is walking around in the town and he gets suspicious and John walks. (laughs) Where does he go? Does he go back? He doesn't go to his house because he's walking. He's walking. Yeah, because he just walked right past the pharmacy, but now he's barging into. I guess he goes to his brother's house, right? Because he gets another phone call from Mueller. Well, see, that's, is that John or is that Peter? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) The person who answers the phone in the scene, I think it's John. Yeah. But I think he's at Peter's house and he's answering the phone pretending to be Peter. Maybe. Hmm. Because, um. Oh, okay. God, I've seen this so many times and I never put this together. So this is John. In Peter's apartment. I think so, yeah. Because he doesn't go... Because like they, they show you Peter with his lab coat watching okay. John. And John goes right. into a house, but he doesn't go through the entrance. And John pissed off with that scowl on his face, marching right past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what? He just lets himself into Peter's place. Yeah, that's right. Okay. The phone rings. It's Mueller. He still wants the 200,000 pesetas. Um, and so now John's pretending to be Peter. Right. Mueller thinks he's talking to Peter. <laughs> right. <Okay>. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the next couple of scenes are, are a head scratcher. Um, John goes looking for Mueller and finds him, finds his hotel I guess like there's a scene where John is standing at the reception desk and some guy hands him a note and I actually Googled, yeah I actually so Google did Muller tell John pretending to be Peter what hotel he was staying at I guess but we didn't hear that on the phone yeah and we didn't see him find like a little note or something right that says oh uh, I'm your kidnapper I'll be available and you know, leave a message in the lobby so that's another leap. So I wrote, John goes looking for Mueller, parentheses, I think. 
and finds his hotel question mark. <laughs> Mueller left a note for Peter or John. Jesus Christ, I wrote. I think the note says for them to meet at 1 a.m. Is that what it says? Yeah, the note is in Italian and uh see David sort of Um You need to find me tonight at one o'clock precisely or on the dot at the station. Uh non deve mancare means like uh you can't miss it or don't don't be late. Uh, don't yeah, don't not be there. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Okay. Um, so then (laughs) John asks the reception guy if he knows where he went and he says he went to the travel agency and he says, do you know which one? And he says, what the, probably the one on the corner, (laughs) obviously. Yeah. He says he sold his car and bought a ticket to what Montego or Yes, yes. The travel agent says that the guy was just in here. You you probably almost ran right into him. Did he have a scar? Yeah, he had a scar. Um, And I don't know what he shows him. Does he show him a picture? Or the travel Uh, agent takes something out and shows it to John. Oh, let's see. He had to sell his car urgently and asked me for a one-way ticket to Montevideo. Or Montevideo, I guess, if we're in Spain. Uh, if you want, you can go see him. He lives at San Mateo number 5. Right. Which is Annie's house. So this is a breadcrumb trail. Yes. So now John's and, doing some detective work, as you would hope eventually would happen in a Jalo film. Not very much, yeah. but eventually um, he does a little bit of it. So, well, it's, it's not very hard detective work. Everywhere he goes, people just spill the beans yeah. on this guy. Absolutely. Did he have a scar? Oh, so you do know the guy. Sure, he lives here. He sold his car. He's going there. <laughs> yeah, and here's anything his, else you want to know about here's him? His, here's his address. But then he goes to the address and Annie opens the door. And yeah, she's, she, she says something about back again. And then they immediately cut mm-hmm. to them in bed, right? Post-coitus, yeah. Post-coitus. So John's not that crazy. Yeah, right? he's not completely out of his mind. But what's with all she the little baby? She must be getting tired of... Yeah, go ahead. What, all the little baby dolls? Yeah, what's... It's so weird. I don't care. I think I'd find a way to forgive it. But <laughs> she must be getting tired of these two guys using her as a substitute for Denise. I mean, she doesn't know, but I'm sure she wouldn't be thrilled. But now, does she think that John is John? Now, see, that's the thing. Right now, I... oh, fuck. Okay. From her <laughs> point of view, she. Dude, this movie gave me a headache. It still gives me a headache. Um, she knows that she has had sex with Peter, and she thinks she's had sex with John. But it was really Peter again. So it was Peter again. Right. So here comes John for real. I don't think she cares whether it's John or Peter, because she's like, whichever one it is, I've banged them both. <laughs> 
and he's thinking, well, you're blonde enough like my wife who teases me and then slams the door in my face. Uh, and uh, there's some things that shock treatment and loud records and injections won't take away from a man. He goes for it. But I think right now he's pretending that he's Peter. Yeah, I think so. Isn't he? Okay, so she gets pissed off. And like the last time, yeah, more or less, all men bang the same. Or no... Yeah, after, after, after the sex, they get into an argument and John attacks her... And right. there's a scene where it looks like somebody's pulling like a scarf. Yeah. And that would be Muller. And this is something that I didn't quite that get. That was either. Muller? <laughs> she doesn't know who Muller is. No. And he slams her against a wall and the lights go out because the loose wiring every time you bang on the walls. The, the lights oh go right, Muller grab. Okay, I I see. Muller grabs the, that the the scarf. And then the lights go out for a split second. And she's on the bed, dead. But not really. I mean, she's not dead. But is she a willing participant in this whole thing? Like, who strangled her? Muller strangled her from, the other room. Oh yeah, there he is. I don't know because the lights go out for a second. No, she's got this. She gets she re- she's revived. Okay, yeah, great shot by the way. She's yeah, got see this again, ladies and gentlemen. That, that scene is not in the YouTube version, which is why I was confused. But if you watch the YouTube version, yeah. you will not see what happens. The only thing that you see in the YouTube version is her. Um, She's backed up against the wall and it looks like the scarf is around her neck. And then the next thing you know, um, they show the police car. They don't show her falling onto the bed because of her boobs hanging out. They can't show it. <clears throat> but yeah. Um, so I maybe she just he started to strangle her and then she just fainted. I don't know. Because she doesn't look choked or anything. I mean, she wakes up pretty quick. As soon as he loses his shit and runs off. Fucking makes my head hurt. Okay, now here's a tantalizing question. (laughs) Is this really Muller? Listening Uh, at home, you might think, what do you mean? What do you mean? Is it really Muller? Hold on. Hopefully, if you're listening at home, looked- you already know what we're talking about because you watch this fucking movie. I would not. Li- uh, well, we, we'll go back to the previous segment where we talk about who who listens to us before they watch the movie. But right. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Is this the you know, which Muller is this? Or is this someone yeah. disguised as Muller? Right. And what? How could you? What? Huh? Huh? There's enough identity confusion in this film. Eh. Well, and then the director says, hold my beer. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So here we have Muller looking up at the light, right? When he walks in and. Uh, 
damn, for some reason, I just keep going over this shot of her laying on the bed. I'm trying to see something. <laughs> you get distracted. Okay, he comes in. Whoop. Nipple. Okay. Uh, he looks down the hall, then he looks up at the chandelier. Okay. At first, I thought, what's he looking upstairs for? Is somebody, like, dancing on the floor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or okay. But, okay, this is this is the the... Well, okay, put a pin in that. He looks up, he notices the lights and uh, the thing with the electricity. Right. Okay, then we get the blurry uh, subjective shot of John, is it? The husband? Yes. Waking up in the police Uh, station? Yes, we think so. Okay. And he got there how? Oh, he tells us later. He just ran there to turn himself in. Right. Killing a girl. Right. Because he thinks he killed her. Right. Apparently he didn't, you know, this uh, man of so many science trophies didn't think to check her pulse before he ran out of the door. But So John turns himself into the police and leads them to Annie's flat. And of course, she's not there. And John looks even more crazy. And that's where mm-hmm. John um, goes and grabs the barrel that has the cigarettes in it. And so it doesn't have anything to do with whether Annie or not would suspect him of being one version or the other because she's not even there anymore. She's upstairs on the next floor with Mueller holding her and keeping her quiet. Uh-huh. Because again, they're trying to drive John crazy. Oh my God. Okay. But an important part of that notice he goes in the room and he bangs on the wall to demonstrate to the cops how when you bang on the wall, the lights turn on and off right. because of the loose wiring. Right. So at some point between him running out of the apartment and him coming back with the cops, Muller rewired her damn apartment or something. Something. Because it doesn't happen anymore. Right. So not only did he have time to drag her upstairs and, you know, uh, gag her into silence while they were rooting through the apartment, but he also fixed that little uh, electrical problem in in what, 20 minutes? However, Yeah, Almost. however long it was that he was gone and it took the cops to come back, but who knows how long that was. And made the bed, right? Put the dolls back. Yeah. Exactly. Dude, he should rent. Fuck blackmailing. This guy should go into uh, home improvement. Exactly. House cleaning or something. Or he could be one of those guys that works at the theater that changes the sets like super quick between scenes. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The lights go down like 10 seconds later. You're seeing a whole new scene. (laughs) And he's off to the side with his hand over the soprano's mouth. That'd be awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and again, what you said earlier was that John sits down and and picks up the barrel that has the cigarettes in it. And he can't figure out how to get the cigarettes to come out, which would which would be interesting if anybody gave a shit. But no one gives like there's nobody there to care. Like, that's true. Except if maybe it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a clue to him about what's going on because 
part of the memory that he thinks he lived includes him knowing how to get the cigarette out and now he can't so it can't be real i don't don't, i don't know i don't see why they would implant that memory into his head they would i wonder if those little cigarette barrels were like a late 60s version of a rubik's cube you know (laughs) where if you solve it your reward was cancer coffin nail (laughs) yeah well it's just a button you just push the button but he can't figure out how to do it so (laughs) so then they leave and as they leave there's um you know we see mueller on the top floor with uh, Annie and he's got her like you know incapacitated so she can't make any noise and then they go out and we see the red uh, motorcycle and that belongs to Peter right that red motorcycle confused me so many times well because much I've... much much earlier when um, when Peter is leaving to go pretend to be John for the first time. Yeah. He takes the motorcycle it's, and he moves it off to the side and parks yeah, it. And he has he, to move it so he can get the car out. So he can out get the, the car way. out. Now, if that's yeah. Peter's motorcycle and he and John sees it and John gets a hunch after seeing Peter's motorcycle. But the other thing I'm thinking is maybe the person upstairs that's got uh, what's her name incapacitated. Annie is not actually Mueller, yeah. but it's really Peter with the Mueller disguise on. Yeah. Okay. So that, that would be our first clue as an audience. If we're paying attention and correctly tracking this whole business <laughs> with the <laughs> motorcycle. You have a better uh, chance of like, you know, discovering uh, the unified theory of everything before you could track uh, the plot in this but, movie. But I don't, I don't know that we would, I don't know that we would figure out that the person that we think is Mueller upstairs is actually Peter. No, you would never. Because we know that. that, Yeah, because we know that they're uh, are kind of maybe supposedly in some kind of plot together. Right. Because of when Peter was in the car and says, you come along and then he helped with the. with the, the reenactment, reenactment right. of the, the car scene. Right. So we know that they're uh, they're teamed up mm-hmm. in this plot. So just seeing the motorcycle wouldn't tell us that Muller is not Muller. Muller is actually Peter. So maybe John just thought, shit, wait, which one? Did I do it again? No, the, the, husband. the husband. The husband is the John. So John sees the right. John okay. sees the motorcycle. John sees a motorcycle. And it's uh, it's identifiable enough or unique enough that he knows nobody else in this town has that motorcycle. Right. It must be my brother. Right. So he just knows that he's around. So he decides to ditch the doctor who's supposed to be taking him to the loony bin. Uh, and there's a spiral staircase. Right? Yeah, there's a really it's a really cool spiral staircase shot, by the way. It's uh, okay. And a nice shot of Annie running down it. A, okay. Um, so he drives to go over to where? Over to his brother's apartment? 
No, he's going to the train station to meet. Right. Oh, right. At because of that note that he note. got. Yes. Right. And he leaves his uh, headlights on because if he kills a battery, he doesn't. Anyway. Well, and then there's a glove. Uh, there's a gun in the glove box. I guess he must have brought that with him. Smart. That's like the most intelligent thing he's done all movie. But unfortunately for him. So um, he goes to meet Miller. Um, and we see the clock. It's 1 a.m. Mueller's there. John is there. And. And he can't believe his eyes because he was so sure that he killed this man. Right. And but then they get onto a train car together. Mueller on mm-hmm. one end and John on the other. And by the way, I just have to go back for a second um, because this is ridiculous. Um, when they say that all humans are potentially epileptic, I don't remember what scene that was, but that just struck me as, is it possible? It to- was right after he saw the motorcycle. He was talking to the doctor. Yeah. Can a patient be provoked? Oh, can it, can it be provoked without a patient noticing? In other words, um, yeah. can you can you artificially induce a seizure? He asks. Yeah. Right. So okay. So Mueller's getting closer with the flashlight, and John goes to shoot him, and nothing happens. Surprise! They're blanks. Now my, uh, I don't know my little nit that I'm going to pick about this is we saw Peter load blanks into the gun, right? We didn't know they were blanks, but we saw him load it, and then later it turned out they were blanks. Right. There were two shots in that reenactment where Muller, quote-unquote, got killed. Here, he fires six shots for a total of eight. And there's, I doubt... Well, oh no, never mind. Now I'm taking a closer look at it, and that is a... uh, that's more than a six shooter. Oh, so, okay. Never mind. My bad. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think anybody was paying was, that close attention. I was, I was, and I thought I was right. I was this close to dropping this movie down under dark glasses. But <laughs> now that you I saw that it's an eight wrong. shooter and not a six shooter. <laughs> yeah. That saved it. <laughs> well, it's interesting that we're paying attention to this because um, over the Halloween uh, weekend holiday, if you want to call it a holiday in a uh, time period, I decided to watch Halloween part two, which is a really fucking terrible movie. I don't know if you've seen it or you've seen it lately. The one, the one in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw that uh, maybe a couple of years ago. I watched it again. So the very beginning of that film is a continuation of what happens at the end of part one. And if you watch the beginning scene of Halloween two, which is a reenactment of part one, Donald Pleasance shoots Michael Myers seven times. The seventh time is when he falls over the balcony and lands on the ground. 
And then Donald Pleasance gets up and runs out and he notices that Michael Myers body is gone. And then he runs over mm-hmm. to the first cop he sees and says, I shot him six times. And <laughs> I know that he didn't shoot him six times because I counted how many times he shoots him. So well, anyway. maybe he missed once. So tell me what happens next, because the gun doesn't work. And as you do, as we know, once you run out of bullets, you throw the gun at the person. By law. By law. It's in the it's in the it's in the Constitution. So now they're in a struggle. This the 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 trains are going by. It's blurry. And then we see somebody landing on the ground and it looks like it's John. It is John, but it's not. Though. No, wait, 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 wait. It's not John. Well, they both could have fallen out, but only one got killed. <sighs> okay. The wait, who the hell is that? Because <laughs> it's sideways and it looks a little blurry. Well, I want to know. I, I also want to know who's in the cooler that we later see. Because so now in the, in, the, in the very next scene, Denise looks out the window. She sees the she sees the red motorcycle. I guess she thinks that it's Peter because she gets all excited. And uh-huh. it turns out that Mueller comes walking in the door. And then for a second, you think as a as a viewer of this movie, maybe this is the tie in that they really were. Maybe these two were really the the masterminds of this whole thing, which would have made a better ending, honestly. Okay, hang on. I'm going... Okay. Struggle, struggle, fight, fight, (laughs) choo-choo, tracks, pan, bam. Okay. There's no scar on that cheek. On? On the, the, the face that we see... On the train tracks. Right? After the fight, somebody falls out of the train. The train goes by and the camera pans over and stops on the face that we assume is dead. Right. There's no scar on the cheek. Oh, wait. There's a scar on the other cheek. What the hell? Let me see here. I'm watching it again. But I can't really... I'm at 117.26. Well, you know where it is. Uh, Because it doesn't exactly look like Peter or John or Muller. It's such a close-up. And it's it's on screen for two seconds. Yeah, it, yeah. I, th- I you know it's definitely not Mueller or the person who's pretending to be Mueller. It's either John or it's Peter. And it definitely looks dead. Yeah, I mean, it's not like person looks dead. But then here comes the big hold on to your seat. All right, so now here comes the. Now, when Denise looks out the window to see the person driving the motorbike, <clears throat> it's clearly Muller, at least for her, it's Muller. 
Yeah. He's wearing a black jacket and a black hat and sunglasses at, exactly. n- at night for some reason. So Mueller comes in the door. Now, is this Denise's house or Peter's house? We don't know. <laughs> Here he comes. Um, he's coming in. Um, and Mueller comes. To oh, this is this is Peter's house. I recognize the wallpaper, and he has the. Uh, well, he has a sculpture laying around. He has that bust or boss relief sculpture hanging on the wall. But he has the record that they played when they were brainwashing his brother. So (laughs) my question, when supposedly Muller comes waltzing in there and she doesn't freak her shit, Right. Right. Well, did you wonder if there was like another betrayal going on? Right. That- well, that's what I was saying. Like, I thought maybe for a split second that that, that she and Muller were really the masterminds of this whole thing. And right. it was a it was a double double cross or something like that. But um, yeah, because why would she act um, excited to see him? I mean, it's clearly Muller, even though it's not like for her, it's Muller. And the person who's pretending to be Mueller says that um, John is dead. Um, I think he says John is dead. Or he's dead. Maybe he just says he's dead. And then she says, we didn't want him to die. You know, to basically, basically exposing herself and the plan in that one in that one line. And then all of a sudden we have this reveal where Mueller takes his face off and takes his contacts out of its eyes. And it's actually who? God, I don't know who it is. Is it Peter or John? The... <laughs> you know, every time I finish watching, well, not every time, <laughs> the last time I finished watching this movie, I was so sure. You thought I you had it figured out. On. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, wait. Uh, well, let's okay. as, let's assume that this is John. Okay, so are we uh, John the husband? No, I think it. Uh, yeah, John's the husband, right? John's the husband. Who's Peter is? But who was on the tracks? Because the person that just walked in the door is the person who pretended to be Mueller. Okay, I think at this point, we're supposed to think this is Peter. And it might be. It might be Peter. Yeah. And I'm thinking the connection, because it's like, where the hell did this mask thing come from? And I think you could sort of extrapolate it from the fact that Peter is into sculpture. Mm, So maybe if you stretch your brain cells just the right way, you can think that he's, he would be good at making masks because he does busts and things, you know, with people's faces. Right. As opposed to the guy Uh, in doll for Satan who wouldn't have any reason to be able to make a mask except that he's a spy. Right. But again, Uh, so I I gotta, I know we're kind of jumping ahead here because uh, we haven't, revealed um the last part but 
The previous scene is the person that we think is John in a conversation with the person that we think is Muller on the train. He tries to shoot mm-hmm. him. There's blanks in the gun. He throws the gun at him. They get into a scuffle. The next thing we see, somebody gets thrown from the train and supposedly dies, and it looks like it's John. It doesn't look like it's Muller. But now, <clears throat> if Muller really is dead, because we see, I think, Muller's body um, in the cooler in the pharmacy in a couple of scenes from now, if Muller really has been killed already and one of the two twins is disguised as Muller, then the one fighting the one disguised as Muller has got to be John because John was the one who went to Annie's house and then saw <laughs> the red motorcycle and then went after um, <clears throat> and then got in the car to go meet Muller because that's what the note said to do. So now that we're back at the house and Denise is here and the Muller who survived the confrontation from the train isn't really Muller. It's the other brother. We have to assume that it's Peter because John's dead. John was thrown off the train. At least that's what we think. Yeah, John is dead. So now he's saying, "Okay, I've killed my brother time for you to pay up right he starts drinking and then he says i want to find out if you're worth it those are great yeah it's a great line (laughs) this better be the bomb and apparently she's kind of like well you got me there yeah it's time for me to uh but does she really because the whole deal was we're going to set this up so that we can drain all yes, of his money keep him alive. while he's alive. Now that he's dead, that uh, that faucet is going to crank shut. And she she mentioned something in a minute about how, well, I'll, they'll give me a little bit of money. We can go still go to Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. She but, does say that. No, killing him was not part of the deal. And then he says, well, he knew it was me because he saw my motorcycle. Which, maybe he knew it was you because you sound like his twin brother when you open your mouth on the fucking train. Yeah. And not, and you not know Mueller, what I mean? Right. You don't recognize a guy. Come on. But, okay. All right. Good old doctor. Okay, so meanwhile, uh, the, the doctor guy has decided to take up his own investigation and he starts walking around the pharmacy and finds, Oh, it's not a cooler. It's just, um, it's just some, like a big trunk. It's like a tomb filled with like rocks or something. And it looks to me like it's Muller in there dead. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be Muller. Cause why would you, yeah, there'd be no reason to drag John home and stick him in the coffin. So John's dead, and here we have left Peter and Denise post-coitus, um, filled with regret, ready to drink themselves uh, so that they can forget their troubles. And um, But here's the problem. 
We've been giving him drugs for months to weaken him. Why did I write that? Who said that? Somebody say that? Does Denise say that? I don't know what. Yeah, because there's another twist coming up. Peter is in full regret mode. Denise tells. He tells Denise that he, said, he will kill her eventually. And then. Yeah, because we both know how evil we are and we'll have to face each other every day for the rest of our lives. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Check out the dimples. And he's just. Now he's pissed. He's slamming glasses and grabbing her by the face. Right. You made me happy. <laughs> this is one of my favorite lines. Uh, where is it? You made me happy for a few minutes. And now I have 24 hours to hate you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so he works himself up into a tizzy. Right, and then he has a fucking epileptic attack on the floor, and she says, oh, no, it's John. Right, so it is John. But how the fuck did that happen? It doesn't make any sense. I just went through step by step why this is Peter. <laughs> From the moment that he leaves Annie's house with the with the doctor, he sees the red motorcycle. He, he go. <laughs> maybe he. OK. All right. So let's let's maybe we can work through this. So let's pretend that something else happens first. So it's still okay. John. John comes out of Annie's house. John sees the red motorcycle. John gets into his car yeah. and drives away. Yeah. But we think that John drives away to go meet Mueller at 1 a.m. at the train station. But maybe he doesn't. Maybe he goes somewhere else. Maybe he goes and puts the Mueller mask on. And then or kills Mueller. Because because. 1 a.m., it probably wasn't 1 a.m. when he left Annie's house. It was probably a lot earlier than that because 1 a.m. is pretty late. Yeah. So maybe he either left on in his car because he had a hunch and it was... <sighs> Peter, who met up with... No, oh, doesn't make any sense. Because the scene on the train, it seems like it's John shoot trying to shoot into Mueller. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we can reconcile this. So we can assume that the person that appeared to be Mueller in the train had to be the person that knew Mueller was actually dead and in a box, Right. Unless it really still was Mueller at that point and he was only killed after the fact. But it makes more sense that that John I'm wondering that, where John where John would have gotten the mask. Cause I mean I just talked about how it kind of makes sense if you think Peter's shit. Peter's the brother. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
We can go back to your top five anytime you want. Um, no. And reevaluate. Let's just make a drinking game out of it. <laughs> Every time Al mixes up Peter and John, take a shot at J and B. Um, it makes sense that the artistic sculptor brother could make a mask, sort of. It does. It. How the hell did the pharmacist husband make a mask? And and again, either way you look at it, one of the Whoever was not in a disguise in the train should have known the other one was his brother as soon as he opened their because mouth. Because of the voice, you if think? Not... Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, let's let's pretend for a second that John left Annie's house in his car, went to Peter's house, and found the mask. No, that can't be right. I was going to say found the mask. He, sa- he found the mask, killed the real Mueller, put him in the rock box and then went to the train uh-huh. and met up with Peter and pushed Peter off the train. <clears throat> then came riding back to Denise on his red motorcycle dressed as Mueller and then uh, dressed as Mueller pretending to be Peter pretending to be Peter as he takes his face off but then eventually has the uh the epileptic seizure, which gives gives the show away because it, he can't pretend, right? To be he's so upset, he can't right. He can't be tr- pretend to be Peter anymore because Peter doesn't have an epileptic seizure, right? And there was a line way early on when uh, they were kind of antagonizing each other. I think it was before she sent him off to play. Uh, whatever game it was. Um, she says, he says something like, uh, when my brother came back, I thought maybe he would try to sleep with you. knowing, without you knowing it was him. And then she says something back. Like who knows how many times I fucked your brother thinking it was you. <laughs> and he, he gets all messed up. So I maybe if this is well okay he's having Oh yeah seizure, okay I remember so. that scene yep In the film it's coded that this is definitely her husband whatever his name is Bill <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he decided hey she was more attracted to my brother my brother's dead I'll assume the identity of my brother so that not only can I finally get some from my own wife but She'll love me and she'll want to be with me. And uh, I don't know. As far as the money goes, he could just say that he's John and that dead body you found near the train station was Peter. Right. So I'm still me. There's no inheritance thing. And then just tell her on the side. No, really? I'm Peter. Trust me. I'm just saying I'm John, you know, but like you said, the, the seizure screws it all up. Yeah. Cause I think that he probably was going to, um, go along with it, pretending that he was Peter. If it's really John, John's going to pretend he's Peter because he can finally bang his own wife. And now that he has the seizure, it's the bets. All bets are off. Right. So they get into this, 
like little scuffle. She runs past and just happens to bump into the record to get it to start playing. Yeah, conveniently. And then he grabs her dirty ass foot. Yeah. And puts her in an ankle lock of death where she can't get out of for hours. Yeah. She has great legs, and though. And in the director's cut, she squirmed for like 10 solid minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's a bonus feature, Mondo Macabre. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, it's so funny with the di- the diegetic music. Like, this, this scene wouldn't be as tense if it wasn't for the music that was playing. Oh, yeah. But she put it on by accident, by hitting it with her hip or her leg or whatever. So before we yep. get to the end of this thing, the cops stop at the gas station and they meet up with the doctor and um, at first I thought it was Muller in the very front seat. I'm like, wait a minute. His, oh, he's still because because the first time I watched this, I fell asleep. And when I woke up, I woke up to this scene where he's struggling and holding her by the ankle. And then they go to this scene. Uh-huh. It could only be one person. The man John believed he'd shot. Okay, the Bruto and the Witherer are likely to have the answer to that question. So now they're off. This record is still playing. Denise is still in a ankle lock. And then um, I guess, you know, they just have this end scene where John decides that um, I love you and I have to kill you. Yep. And he gives her the typical, my hand's on your throat, so count to three and you're dead. Choke. Right. Ew. And then he kisses her. And then the cavalry arrives. Yep, cavalry arrives, but um, the it's too late. John's still alive, but Denise is dead. And we go to the record one last time and we get the fine and in my copy um it actually leaves the fine and goes right to um some trailers or um different versions of the opening credits or something i don't know why it does that the version that i downloaded not the youtube version okay so well mine doesn't it so as far as the ending is concerned, I mean, I don't know. It kind of ends with a whimper instead of a, a bang. Yeah. And there's just a lot of bad decision making in this movie, which most movies you know, wouldn't exist if somebody wouldn't be in a ding dong. But if you're John and you realize that your wife has had this plot to drive you nuts and take all your money and they've been banging behind your back while she's cut you off right. for all this time. You know, Annie's right down the road, dude. 
you know? Just ditch them both. And, or if your idea is to drive the, the husband crazy, why not just dose them full of acid and lock them in an attic with tarantulas or something for a weekend? <laughs> why do you have to go through all this shit with the blackmailer and the girl in the next town and leave this little trail of breadcrumbs from the hotel to the travel agency? And, oh, no, he saw my motorcycle. <laughs> right. I think there'd be a lot easier ways to do it than that. So. <sighs> Absolutely. But I like the audacity of a movie like this where you have the the whole identity who is who and who's really who and who's pretending not to be who. And then at the end of it, you throw in the the mask element. I thought that was just like a cherry on top of a go fuck yourself to the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing. Like we spent a lot of time trying to recreate what we think may have happened and we still don't know. And we still we're still probably never going to know and it's because it doesn't really make sense the difference between john mueller and peter in the last 10 minutes of the film is anybody's guess i think they just decided hey let's let's do a a double 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 cross and throw in a, a mask on top of it just for fun and let's not give a shit about whether it makes sense because you know, the people watching this in the theater, they're not keeping track like you and I are. So, yeah. But by the end of the month, there are going to be people sitting at home watching their Blu-ray. <laughs> and uh, I hope Mondo Macabre appreciates all the business we're shoveling their That's way. That's right. But um, so when do you think Mueller actually died? Right. I don't. That's a good question. Like in my in my fantasy world, sometime between the time that, um, well, maybe not. I thought that, like, cause so, so Mueller is left behind, as far as we know, at Annie's apartment after John leaves and notices the red motorcycle. But we still don't know if that's the real Mueller. That may be Peter dressed up as Mueller. Hence the you know, hence the red the- motorcycle. In the reenactment where uh, Mueller gets shot with the blanks and then dragged down to the car. Right. What if that was Peter already in a mask? But Peter shoots him. With blanks. But he pretends to shoot him. How could Peter be the one in the mask and also sitting? No, okay. Wait. Which one's Peter? (laughs) (laughs) The the brother. Okay. Okay. No, but okay. I think the one (laughs) in that reenactment. Okay, it works like this. I mean, I'm not saying I'm saying my theory would work, but only if this is the case. Right. Okay. Um, the one with the gun in the white shirt that looks like one of the twins. If that is the husband twin. And the one that looks like Mueller is the is Peter with the Mueller mask on. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know if that I, that I would go that way. Like, I, I believe that that's still the real. I don't know. 
Because did they convince? Did they really convince the real Mueller to come there and pretend to reenact? See, the that's scene? what I don't get. Because well, the question is, what did Peter mean when he was in the car with Mueller and says, um, "Fortunately, you've come along at a very opportune time. You can help me." Okay. What did he mean by that? Did he mean I'm going to take you outside of the city limits and kill you? And then mold a latex mask? or I don't know, whatever the hell people make masks out of. Um, off of your face? And then pretend to be you? Because we don't see Mueller again until that reenactment scene. And like you said, you don't see the other brother or even the back of the other brother's head during that scene. Right. 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 Yeah, he's the, the the other twin is not in that scene at all. Yeah. But remember so maybe, remember in the very beginning when Denise says um this is it's great that like she was basically saying it's great that Mueller happened to come by when he did because now um, not only do we have an excuse to go, th- you know, do we have a real incentive to go through with our plan, but we also have a decoy. But wh- how is Mueller a decoy? Uh, like what, what purpose does he serve that, you know, where he's, you know, what, what, what do they do? I don't know. Yeah, because it's not like the cops were ever looking for Mueller. It's like the cops didn't know he existed through the whole movie. Right. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. All right. Well, just for fun... I've brought up the Jallo score and I want to go through this and see what it scores is the director okay. based on the, the notes. I forget what you said. Is the director a, a Spanish director or an Italian director? The director is Spanish. I believe. Xavier something. Yeah. Javier, Javier, Setop, born in Lurida, Spain, died in Madrid, Spain, at 43 years old. Okay. So Spanish director, I'm not giving it um, points for hidden identity because the whole idea behind hidden identity is that (laughs) something is going on and we don't know who's doing it. In this case, we know who's doing it. We're just not sure which one is doing it. So I'm not giving it the points. Everybody's everybody's doing, doing something. We have black gloves, uh, an amateur detective. We can call John an amateur detective, I guess. Uh, pre-classic period, 1969. The motivation uh, is, is it more revenge or is it more monetary? The motivation of, I guess we could say that the quote unquote killers, even though they're not killers, are Denise and Peter who plot against John to take his money, right? Is that what they're trying to do? Right. Okay. Yeah, and I would say it's more financial because if the money was out of the picture, I don't know if they would have bothered. I think she probably would have just divorced him and or they would have run off together and left him behind. Okay. 
Now, again, assuming that the quote unquote killers are Denise and John, because it's their plan. I mean, Denise and Peter, because it's their plan. They both end up dead at the end of the film, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, Did this director make any other jolly? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure he didn't. Okay. We don't have a body count of three or more. Um, we don't have a flashback revelation. We don't have an Italian location. Mistaken identity. Holy shit. I should give that three points. Three three versions. Is there more than one? That should have been the title of the damn movie. Right, exactly. As opposed to Ghost Phantom Around <laughs> Your Void or whatever the hell. <laughs> <people are> coming <laughs> up. <laughs> okay. More than one killer or an accomplice. I can give points for that. Um, there's a nude scene suspects there's really no suspects we just we know that people are up to something we just don't know who's doing what at what time so i'm not going to give them points for that urban location <clears throat> is yeah the word death is in the title at least in my version there's no funeral there's no bathtub murder there's no car or sur- motorcycle racing there's no chase scene uh cheating there's definitely cheating uh, a map of the city. Did we see that anywhere? I don't think so. Um, comic relief character. No death from falling. No dolls or dummies. We saw that. Um, yeah. Uh, Gaslighting. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, gay and lesbian. No hippies dancing. No J and B. There were no J and B bottles that I saw. Um, no. I, the I the odd clue. I'm going to give that to the feather. Um, peeping Tom, no peeping Tom, pathologist, no pseudoscience, big yes, photography, modeling, art, yes, we can give them that. No priest, nobody trying to prove their innocence, no psychologist. Is the doctor really a psychologist? Not really. Uh, spiral stairs, taunting, yeah. visual misinterpretation. Okay, let's see. Let's see what we get. Put it in my old uh, supercomputer here and <laughs> a 49. Well, that's good. At least Jesus Christ. I was, I'm glad that didn't score higher. <sighs> that would make me mad if it got above a 60. 49 is fine. Okay. So ladies and gentlemen on the Jallo score, it is a 49, which uh, basically means that you know, it's got a few little earmarks here and there, benchmarks, earmarks, whatever you want to call them, um, of the Jalo format, but not enough to really warrant it being. I mean, when you start to talk about how do you define the word Jalo and how broad of a definition is it, how specific, uh, this falls under the category of Jalo, and I guess rightly so because it's just, um. One of those movies where it's like, I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know who's doing what to who and who's in on it. And it's a thriller. It's a mystery. There's definitely a mystery going on in this movie. Like who's going to come out on top and who is who. So that's probably why people think of it as a giallo. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, But is it any good? Uh, I don't know. I think um, 
if they made an attempt to make the movie a little bit more cohesive and not try to just constantly trick you into wondering who you were watching. Like it's almost as if they did it to a point where it was so ridiculous that they're just poking fun at the whole thing. Cause I can't imagine that they watched this movie after it came out and thought seriously, a we've got a, an airtight plot here. Yeah. The, um, the biggest problem I have with it is they pull stuff out late in the game that they haven't set up. Like the whole mask thing. Where the hell did that come from? And it's not that how dare you surprise me. It's it didn't feel earned. Yeah. At it all. Didn't. I mean, yeah, okay. Uh one of the characters in this film does a lot of sculpture involving faces and they kind of rub it in your face that the sculpture isn't just like weird abstract, like, you know, um, cubist depictions of a giraffe right, right, or right. something. Yep. It's, it's faces yep. and busts. And then here comes the masks. Okay. Well, you, another little half step in that direction early, uh, preferably in some way that doesn't, you know, announce its arrival the second you see it, and, you know, like Chekhov's gun or something. But it it came out of nowhere. And then, okay, so now we have masks of Muller. Well, it's probably not. The fact that you have to wonder who made the mask in the first place. And if it wasn't John, how did John figure out to put it on and, you know, it's too many um, leaps that you have to make. Yes. If you just don't want to ignore the, the holes, you know. Well, and, you know, um, it, it's it's one thing to set something up as a surprise. But if the surprise is so far out of left field that it doesn't even seem possible, it's not a good surprise. So, like... The whole time I'm watching the movie, and I forgot that that was what happened at the end. The whole time I'm watching the movie, I'm not thinking that anybody's trying to pretend to be Muller. Like, we're already preoccupied with the idea of John's pretending to be Peter, who's pretending to be John. And Peter's pretending to be John, who's pretending to be Peter. And (laughs) Muller doesn't know which one is which. And Denise kind of doesn't know. And that has basically you know, hijacked all of my attention and all of my cognitive ability to process what's going on. And now you're throwing at me the idea that at some point in the movie, the one guy that is just one guy is not only the one, that one guy is it's, it's one of these other two fucking people who decided that they were going (laughs) to pretend to be the other one guy. And why, at what point did that happen? It's like, it's 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 insane. It's insane. And when 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 they try to make a movie where that's the way that they surprise you, it's like I said, it's so far fetched that it's not a surprise. It's just, you know, it's it, it's just irreconcilable. Yeah. Maybe is the right word I'm looking for. But I'm looking 
just because why not give Mondo Macabro a little bit more plugs for free? I'm looking at the website and it says, please note that previous Blu-ray versions of this film have been inferior, have been the inferior Italian cut of the film. This is the original and better Spanish cut, though the scenes that differ from this version have been included in the extras. Um, okay. Uh I have a point about that, but that's interesting. Um, so what I'm thinking is that maybe uh, if this is saying that it's the where did you see that it said um, a 93 minute version? Let's see. I think that's this one. So this is going to be a little bit different. Okay, the uh, the Mondo Macabro. Yeah, is I think the 93 minute version. So it says here, former showgirl Denise lives in a small northern Spanish town with her husband, John, and his twin brother, Peter. Tired of life with her rich but boring husband, she has begun an affair with Peter. The two of them want to remove John from the picture and get their hands on his money, but they don't know how to achieve their goal. Gert Muller, a dangerous figure from Denise's past, turns up out of the blue. He is on... It says here he is on his uppers and needs cash fast. He discovers... On his uppers? Yeah. What does that mean? He wrote that. Charles Dickens? <laughs> he discovers what is going on with Denise and Peter and decides to blackmail them. However, his scheme goes seriously wrong when the cheating lovers forge a plan to get to use Gert himself to achieve their goal. They embark on a devious scheme to drive John insane and fit him up for Gert's murder. A splendidly devious Spanish giallo shadow of death is a real mind melter of a plot. That's for sure. With numerous twists yeah. and turns. It's a film that needs multiple viewings before it reveals all of its secrets. The cast are uniformly excellent. <clears throat> blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, listen. Well, that multiple viewings part was definitely They're correct. right about that. Okay. Yeah. So this is um, a region-free 1080p presentation of the 2K restoration of the original Spanish negative. Uh, either the Spanish track with English subs or the English dub track. Interview with somebody that's not mm -hmm. related very much. And alternate scenes and the trailer. Okay. So I don't know. If you like this film, this Blu-ray is definitely worth picking up. Um, that being said, and it includes alternate scenes from the Italian version, right? Okay, the version I have or um, found on my computer is <laughs> well, shit, I just closed it. Um, it has English subtitle tracks, it has, um, I think Italian subtitles and german subtitles and for the audio let me see audio options are english italian french and german no spanish at all subtitled options are english and german so and my title card as the movie starts up it says L'Assassino Fantasma and under it in parentheses Il Vuoto Intorno. So the ghost assassin and the emptiness around 
or the surrounding emptiness. Okay. Uh, and it is the one that is, what I say, 89 minutes? Shit, I just closed it again. <laughs> yeah, 89 minutes. Um, one thing I've learned from listening to the Nashi cast and watching uh, Spanish films and listening to podcasts about them is that at that time in Spain, nudity in Spanish films that were released in Spain was not allowed under uh, General Franco. Okay. So what they would often do is they would film two versions of the movies. And I think one of the examples that uh, a lot of people might know is Count Dracula's Great Love starring Paul Nashi. There's a Spanish version that has no nudity, but then they would reshoot the the scenes that would have nudity with nudity, and those would be the international or outside of Spain versions. Okay. So I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, if it wasn't just for the fact that the version I had didn't have any Spanish on it at all, I could have guessed this is not the Spanish version because there are, I mean, you do see nipples and yes. uh, full breasts a couple times. I'm wondering if this longer version that they're calling the Spanish version for the Blu-ray, is that the Spanish Spanish version or is that the Spanish international version? Mm. Don't know. Good question. Be cool to find out. And uh, well, listen. If uh, if our audience would like to donate twenty seven dollars, uh, I'll be happy <laughs> to answer that question for you, or you'll be happy to answer the question for me. Um, or if one of our listeners wants to get it for themselves and let us know the answer, um, yeah. I'm wondering, uh, or not wondering. I'm assuming that at some point. This new version um, that Mondo Macabro is going to be releasing soon may be available um, nefariously. Yeah. Um, so I may have the answer. Um, not that I. Well, I'm 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 curious because at first when I think you know I mean I I even made a joke about it I was like there's you know, two more minutes of butt dimples. <laughs> But if this is a Spanish version, I think it'd be safe to say that that extra time, the four minute gap between the version I've just watched and the version that's coming out on the Blu-ray, if it's a Spanish, Spanish version, it's not going to be like love scenes or sexy stuff that got cut somewhere along the line. It might be more plot stuff yeah. that explains stuff like what if there's a four minute scene of peter saying oh look denise i can make masks <laughs> you know <laughs> that would explain a lot absolutely that would that would jack the movie <laughs> up a lot as far as my appreciation of it you know not, yeah and, not me but you know to each his own so <laughs> anyway <laughs> Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is the 1969 Shadow of Death. We did it to death. And I feel like death from trying to figure out what the fuck we were talking about. But, you know, 
it is apropos, as they say, considering the fact that this is episode 99 of the end of it, and we just finished our last proto-jalo. Get my singulars and my plurals mixed up still. And uh, we're, we're going to move on. Onward and upward, everybody. Um, I think that we've decided that Al likes the film better than I do. And I think that we decided that despite the fact that Al's watched it four times, he might watch it again. Um, I don't think <laughs> I will. But, uh, you know, stranger things have happened. Would I watch? Here's the question. Would I watch Shadow of Death again? Before I watch Date for a Murder again, and the answer is, <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> I think I would try to make it through Death Knocks twice before I attempted either of these two rewatches again. Um, but man, that one was tough. Like, I, I need to watch that just to see what all the fuss was just, about. Just, and maybe I'm wrong, but like, you know how date for a murder had that little spy thing happening. Um, Death knocks twice has the same thing going on where there's this American looking James Bond, Roger Moore lookalike who's been put in charge. The movie is preposterous, at least from what I remember, because in the very beginning, a woman dies on the beach and we see who kills her pretty much. We also see that three other people see that someone kills her on the beach and um, she's wearing a very expensive diamond necklace, which has by the time the cops arrive has disappeared. And so the movie is about the detectives and the spies who are trying to recover the diamond necklace but also trying to solve the murder at the same time. And it's just really dumb. And the guy who plays um, the main character in What Have You Done to Solange is in it, but he's much younger, and he looks like this androgynous... Um, he, he looks like the, the, the model for the, uh, the inside the human... Um, you know what I'm talking about? Like in the biology class, they had that. Yeah, the uh, what did they call that? The I don't um, remember now. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I you might want to watch it. Um, I still have to. Well, I I I don't have to. I still I I really haven't finished it for sure. Like I haven't gone through it long enough, and and with it um a detailed enough eye to say, oh yeah, I know what happened in um, Death Knocks twice because I really still don't. All right, everybody. So that is it. We are five hours in and uh, (laughs) we'll see what happens next time. But um, just want to remind everybody that uh, the big 100 episode extravaganza is happening next time. Uh, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what to promise you yet. I'm thinking it's going to be fun, 
most of it will be spontaneous and um, improvised. Uh, but we are going to try to, you know, besides walk down memory lane, we'll probably try our best to go through Bird with the Crystal Plumage with new eyes, with with eyes that are 10 years older and, and wiser, maybe. Um, yeah. Prior to that happening, if you would like to get in contact with us, as always, go to our Facebook group called Jalo Chow Chow. Um, or you can send an email to Jalo Chow Chow at gmail.com. Don't forget to visit my website, the and I hate Matt for Matt's website. And, uh, that's it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to ask Al if he has anything to plug. Cause he always says he's unpluggable. That's right. And that's the end of the story. But again, thank you all for listening this far. And I'm very excited for, our final episode of the year. I'm also very excited for what's to come in 2024. So I hope everybody will stay tuned for all of that. So until next time, everybody, this is me saying ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. <laughs>